Blog Talk Radio. got a good one for you today. I got a good one for you. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, a lot of stuff going on. Got a little bit of breaking news that we're going to get to in just a little bit. I mean, I guess breaking as of like two hours ago. Um, I'll lead with that. Of course, I'm talking about Colin Powell. I'm just going to say Colin from now on because I've heard, my whole life I've heard Colin Powell, but that sounds funny. And also it's spelled fucking Colin. So why wouldn't I just say Colin? I don't understand why everybody has a weird uh, pronunciation of it, and I don't know what he said it should be. So anyway, I'm going to talk about that. Then i got a full show today. Jon Stewart tells Jake Tapper to stop talking about Donald Trump. Um, Russell Brand and Matthew McConaughey talk about um, how we might be heading towards a civil war. I'll give you my thoughts on that. I will weigh in on CNN's Don Lemon coping over Joe Rogan and Sanjay Gupta's conversation and the part about ivermectin. Um, Then I have Ben Shapiro and Barry Weiss. I will be viciously making fun of them. Some new Epstein news in this book that's coming out. Um, Apparently, Homeboy was like, yeah, of course I have the dirt on Bill Clinton and Donald Trump, and I think that's why they arrested me. And, of course, this happened before he was axed. So we'll talk about that. And uh, Manchin and Bernie are, are going at it in the heavyweight slugfest. Uh, we will talk about that as well. Ooh, I like that term, heavyweight slugfest. I might actually use that for the title. I just thought of that right now. Um, 
And, yeah, that, there's a lot more on top of that as well, but I won't give you any more teases. Oh, the view, uh, one more, one more, one more. The View goes after Tucker Carlson for defending Mayor Pete and his paid leave. So we'll talk about that and much more. Um, let's get it started. And like I said, we'll do that with um, Co- Colin Powell. I'm going to say his name that way. So we're just getting some breaking news uh, about an hour or two ago. Um, Apparently, Colin Powell, and I'm going to say his name Colin. It's spelled Colin. If I didn't hear other people say it, I would say Colin. uh, But people say colon. People pronounce it all sorts of different ways. I don't know how he wanted it pronounced, but it says Colin. So I'm just going to say Colin from now on, even though I'm probably not going to have to say his name ever again. But uh, So Colin Powell passed away at the age of 84, and he died from COVID. Now, he was also fully vaccinated. More on that in a little bit. We're going to get to uh, more of that a little bit later. But first and foremost, I wanted to um, talk a little bit about the reaction. So there has been a colossal outpouring of support, and a lot of people calling him an American hero. And this leads into the age-old conversation that we have every time Uh, somebody well-known dies or some very political figure dies, Uh, the question is, what is the proper etiquette and decorum in terms of dealing with their record and dealing with either the good things that they've done or the colossal harm that they've caused? And Colin Powell is actually a very, very, very interesting case because this is a man who had fantastic PR, even though he was one of the most important, one of the key players, one of the most consequential figures in helping to lie us into the Iraq war. Now, some of the people who listen to the show are uh, pretty young. There's a lot of millennials who listen to the show, some Gen Xers, fewer boomers, maybe a handful of silent generation folks. But uh, for the Gen Z people who are watching this who might not know the ins and outs and the details of Colin Powell, um, So he, of course, worked his way up the ranks in the military, and he became our first African-American Secretary of State. And as George W. Bush's Secretary of State, he famously went to the U.N. and held up a vial to make the case that, look, Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction, and here's some evidence of his weapons of mass destruction, and therefore, we got to do what we got to do. we got to keep the world safe. America has to invade. America has to protect democracy and freedom around the world and get rid of the big bad dictator. Um, That was the defining moment of his legacy and his life. And what you're seeing in the media is almost no commentary on that whatsoever. And instead, the focus is first African-American Secretary of State. So he gets praised over that. Um, And you're seeing that he was disillusioned with Donald Trump and the Republican Party. And so he left the Republican Party. He endorsed, I think he endorsed Barack Obama in 2008 and he endorsed Joe Biden in 2016. Um, and so towards the end of his life, he was a much bigger supporter of Democrats because he felt like the Republicans had gone insane. Now, it is true the Republicans had gone insane, um, but what's also true is he was a part of that because he helped lie us into an illegal and offensive war against a country that didn't attack us. Now, he did it with all of the civility and decorum in the world, He did it with all the grace you can imagine. He put on a very good veneer and facade of polite society. 
he helped lie us into an illegal and offensive war that led to the deaths of at least 200,000 innocent civilians. Some estimates have upwards of a million innocent civilians, and of course, wasted trillions of dollars. Military industrial complex price gouges us to the high heavens. And uh, not only do we have nothing to show for it, there were countless war crimes. So one can definitely make the case, this is a war criminal. This is a war criminal with fantastic PR who's beloved in U.S. media, sort of like John McCain. Um, so there's an article the media I put out. I'll read you a little bit from it. The headline is, A Genuine American Hero. The Death of Colin Powell Sets Off Massive Bipartisan Tribute. And I'll just read you some of this. Um, Powell, who, despite being fully vaccinated, died from COVID-19 Monday at the age of 84. Again, more on that later. Hold your horses on any conclusions you might have on that front. Uh, was lauded Monday morning as a trailblazer and a towering figure in American life. He served as Secretary of State and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs under former President George W. Bush. He was the first African-American to hold those positions. In a statement, the former president honored Powell, who, lauded, who he lauded as a family man and a friend. So George W. Bush released a statement. Uh, we don't need to go through the statement, but of course, I'm deeply saddened by the death, great public servant, um, so on and so forth. Until recently, Powell was a member of the Republican Party. He was a vocal critic of Donald Trump and spoke at the 2020 DNC on behalf of Biden. Uh, following the January 6th riot, he said, I can no longer call myself a Republican. Funny that it took that long. You know, a lot of people should have said, I will no longer call myself a Republican when they lied us into an illegal and offensive war, but I repeat myself. Um, so congressional Republicans and Democrats and other public servants came together Monday morning to mourn the loss of the former Secretary of State, Representative Elise Stefanik. I am saddened to hear, I think she's a Republican, I'm saddened to hear that four-star General Colin Powell, former U.S. Secretary of State and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, has passed away. America has lost a true leader and an American patriot, but we will always remember his service to the United States of America. Representative Vern Buchanan. By the way, I don't know more than half of the people in Congress. Vern Buchanan, that sounds like a fake person. Saddened to hear of the passing of uh, General Colin Powell, uh, former U.S. Secretary of State and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, an incredible statesman, an American hero. And then it goes on. Uh, Mark Warner, he's a Democrat in the Senate. Uh, who else do we have here? Adriano Espaillat. Don't know who that is. Definitely in the House of Representatives. Uh, David Ciciline, I don't know if he's a Democrat or Republican, but you get the gist. You have Democrats and Republicans who are elites, who are in the halls of power, who are heaping praise on this man. Now, I must say, I saw the news of his passing, and my initial reaction was not, hey, you know what, I'm going to cover this. Um, because the legacy is complicated. Is it wonderful that he was the first uh, black Secretary of State? Absolutely. Is it wonderful that he held many other positions where he was the first African-American in that position? Sure, absolutely. Um, but since he is a war criminal and he did help lie us into an illegal and offensive war, I was like, you know what, I'm just going to let this one slide and not cover it because, again, my instinct is I never want to tap dance on anybody's grave because I do think there's something that's non-lefty about that and anti-humanitarian about that. Um, but last time we had this conversation, I did sort of lay out my ground rules for you guys. And there's one part I mentioned which reoccurred to me, let's say. Even if somebody's a piece of garbage with their opinions and they're a colossal asshole and they're a bigot or whatever, I look at those people and I still can't say, you know, I wish harm on them or I wish death on them because that 
says a lot more about you than it does about them. Because it's not like the penalty for being a colossal asshole should be death. Like, you should die as a result of that. Because then, again, there, there's something that's non-human about that in a way that disturbs me, and it's sort of like an authoritarian response, and, you know, like wishing ill on everybody who doesn't agree with you is, seems fucked up. But I did say, and I stand by this, I do have um, one real reservation on that front, which is war criminals. If somebody's a war criminal, and honestly, you know, I probably make an exception as well for hardcore criminal criminals, serial killers, things of that nature. Um, no, I actually, I actually don't think the, that instinct makes sense on that front, especially when there is a bunch of heaping, fawning, over-the-top praise and a flat-out deflection and obfuscation from the real record and the crimes that were committed. And that's what's happening with Colin Powell. It's so positive. It's so overwhelming. It's so over the top that now I feel like I have to come out and say, hey, just FYI, so everybody knows, he helped lie us into an illegal and offensive war that killed minimum hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians, maybe over a million innocent civilians. And, you know, there's a great tweet from Alex Perrine who said, here, actually, you know what, let me... Let me read it to you, because if I try to retell it, I'm going to fuck it up in about 14 ways. Um, here it is. So Owen Higgins said, Colin Powell is going to be remembered today as a statesman, but he should be remembered for using his gravitas to sell a war he knew was a lie. And then Alex Perrine says, an exemplary figure of this age in that he convinced himself that remaining in his position of power despite his private misgivings was more honorable than airing those misgivings which he'd do years after it mattered. So in other words, way after he sold the war, he was like, hmm, yeah, maybe I shouldn't have done that. But he convinced himself the right thing to do is to keep my position of power and do what the bosses tell me, and the bosses tell me, go sell this war. And so I'm going to go sell this war. And so um, I do feel compelled to repeat the fact that he's a war criminal, specifically because in mainstream media you're not going to hear about this perspective. The elites are going to cover up the crimes because a lot of the other elites are also guilty of crimes, and they want the fawning praise when they pass away. Well, no. This is the whole point of alternative media and independent media, new media. We're here to correct the record and give you guys the facts, and you make up your own goddamn mind. Now, again, my instinct is I don't tap dance on anybody's grave. I think that there's something gross about that. But do I begrudge anybody who sort of has that reaction when it's a war criminal? I can't begrudge you that. Imagine you're you know, the, a mother, and you lost your son in Iraq, and you see this fawning praise for this guy who helped lie us into that war where your son was killed. How's she going to react? How's she going to feel? And to whitewash that record and pretend, like, no, this guy was just a hero. Come on. It's incredibly misleading, and it's messed up. Now, um, I told you guys I'd come back to the fact that he was fully vaccinated and he died of COVID-19, here is what you guys absolutely positively need to understand. I understand that the anti-vax crowd is going to be all over this, and they're going to use this as what they think is evidence for their worldview, which is, well, of course, the vaccine does nothing. Colin Powell was fully vaccinated, and he died. Uh, Colin Powell was suffering from multiple myeloma. It's a blood cancer that directly harms the body's ability to fight infections. So he's 84 years old. He has a blood cancer, which makes you not able to fight off infections well. 
And then also, I just learned, he apparently had Parkinson's too. 84 years old, blood cancer, Parkinson's, vaccinated but ended up dying of COVID. Now, uh, in fact, I'll throw it up on the screen for you guys right now just so you get a sense of this. This is in The Guardian. A French study of over 22 million people finds vaccines cut severe COVID risk by 90%. Uh, In fact, let me show you another chart here. This is in Science News, and this shows just how well the vaccines are actually doing their jobs. Uh, You can see here, so rate per 100,000 in the population, this is hospitalizations for COVID-19. Look at the line for fully vaccinated people and look at the line for unvaccinated people. So in other words, Well over 90% of the time, the people who get severe COVID, the people who are hospitalized for COVID, and the people who die of COVID are unvaccinated. Now, I just told you, though, it's 90%. uh, Vaccines cut severe COVID risk by 90%. You know what that means? There's a small percentage, a very small percentage, where um, it's still not enough, and you can still get COVID and die. But usually in those instances, it's people who are very elderly, or people who have some other factor which might make them unable to fight off the virus. And that's exactly what we have with Colin Powell. 84 years old, blood cancer, um, Parkinson's, and it just it wasn't enough. Now, does that mean that vaccines don't work? No, because again, you have to look at the data uh, and you have to prioritize that over anecdotes. And unfortunately, in our primitive monkey brains, people really grasp and hold on to anecdotes and they, they don't really look at the macro picture. They're obsessed with the micro picture, especially when it comes from a source that they personally trust. If it's a friend or a family member says, I know a guy who X, Y, or Z happened like Nicki Minaj with the, his cousin's friend in the swollen ball sack. For whatever reason, our primitive brains grasp onto those things and hold onto those things and think that disproves the efficacy of the vaccines. When you look at the overall data and you look at the macro picture, it, it's crystal clear that the vaccines are, you know, wildly successful and work very well. This just happens to be an instance where between being 84 years old, the blood cancer, and the Parkinson's, it wasn't enough. There you have it. That's the, uh, the breakdown of Colin Powell and his death. Unfortunately, I, I don't feel like I'm saying anything that's, you know, uh, particularly controversial here, but you're not going to hear this perspective in many other places, and that's a very sad thing. Okay. All right, next. Let's move on. Okay. Sorry, guys. I was just responding and giving another host very important context that he had blood cancer. Anyway, Russell Brand and Matthew McConaughey. So I have a video here for you guys. This is on Russell Brand's YouTube channel. Uh, We actually had Russell recently on the Crystal Kyle and Friends podcast. You guys should check that out if you haven't. Again, the audio is free for everybody. You could look at any of the podcast platforms that you prefer to use and get the audio for free, or you could sign up on Substack for free 
and get the audio version as soon as it drops, or you can get the video version a day early, pay $5 a month, and you would see the video version of Crystal Kyle and Friends with Russell Brand and every other one we do. But anyway, uh, Russell Brand um, did a segment here. He talks about Matthew McConaughey, who was recently on some other podcast, and um, they talk about how they fear the United States might be headed towards a civil war. It's interesting stuff they say here. I want to watch it, and then I'll come back and break it down and give you my agreements and disagreements. Well, I'd love to hear some definitions. I'm, I'm working on what I'm trying to understand politics to be. I think we've got to redefine politics. If each party only about preservation of party, well, I'm almost arguing that that's undemocratic. If you're only there to buy book or buy book, preserve your party, you're leaving out 50% of people. So I, I think politics needs to be redefined. Look, are the parties so extreme right now that they're going to walk their way into extinction? I don't know. What I fear is, you know, great nations don't, aren't taken over from the outside. They implode. Civil war. That's the big fear for me, for the country, is this path we're going. You know, a lot of people are concerned about the civil war in America. It's something that's talked about a lot in online spaces. And this uh, secession idea, I suppose, is a way to acknowledge without physical conflict or military conflict or whatever type of conflict that might be in this day and age. Tim Paul, when he was on the podcast, talked about that we're already in a phase of civil war in terms of contempt for both sides. And even the results of this survey suggest the degree of disparity and uh, oppositionism that is a challenge to the idea of one cohesive nation. Uh, that a new type of politics is required. And you can't have a political situation that is so judgmental and condemnatory of the other 50% of people, or whatever side, one content ends the argument, I think you're in real trouble. Compassion and love for people you disagree with is sort of fundamental, I feel. It's not constructive. I don't see the way out right now through politics, right. unless it redefines itself and repurposes itself. Why are you not doing that, letting anybody know who you're for, who you're against? Taking sides on a political issue right now, to me, precedes the discussion of something larger and much more important. Like the questions we were asking a minute ago, the definition is, what the hell is politics? We had to read, before we start saying, hey, it's right, stand, this right, stand, which creates already a divide of some of the people that come at you. So let's answer these other questions about purpose of democracy. All right, what, what is progress? They have this question. Do we really want to be a United States of America? And I don't say that with arrogance or condensation. It's a question we've got to answer. What is leadership? Why is our nation's trust level so low with our leaders, with ourselves, with each other? That's more interesting to me before we start hopping in the middle of politics going, this is where I stand here and this is where I stand here. Everybody needs to be in the conversation to answer the questions that I was just bringing up. So does America need a divorce? Would all the nations in the world benefit from devolution? Is it a fact that the reason to concentrate central power at the level of state government is in order to create relationships with transnational global corporations in order to treat the population of that nation state primarily as a marketplace and prevent there being any real democratic process because that real democracy would prevent those relationships functioning without interruption? So many questions. What do you think would be better for your country, America? What do you think would be better for Britain? What kind of democracy would you like to live in? What do you believe progress to be? What would a better world look like? Do you think it's possible for the apparent opposing sides, who in my opinion aren't a million miles away from one another, what would it take for them to work collegiately together in true union? Wouldn't it be beautiful, really, if one day we could all cooperate and collaborate together with freedom, with absolute freedom, like that we could run our own lives and communities? In a sense, unless we mobilize, unless we have these kind of conversations, we are doomed to more homeostasis in a world that is, well, it's not stagnating, it's bursting into flames. It's a combustible situation. Okay, so let's break this down. Um, 
Matthew McConaughey was saying, are the parties so extreme right now that they're going to walk their way into extinction? And then he brings up, civil war is the thing that I fear. Um, Here's the thing about claims that we may have a civil war in the U.S. We have way, way, way too many phenomenal distractions to ever get us to the point in the modern day and age where there's a civil war. I have no doubt that there's some percentage of people, small though, albeit, on, on both sides that are like, hell yeah, like we should have that. Uh, but then you go, ooh, there's a new show out on Netflix and it looks phenomenal. Let's take a look. Ooh, my favorite streamer on Twitch is, is doing X, Y, or Z. I got to go take a look. Ooh, a new YouTube video just dropped. I should check this out. And the list goes on and on. Um, I really do believe that with modern technology, it has this ability to pacify us. Now, some people might say, well, that's a terrible thing because you become more disengaged in a variety of ways. And other people might say, well, it's a phenomenal thing because you want to avoid the worst case scenario, which would be some sort of a potential civil war. But I would say I think it is a massive, massive reach in today's day and age that there would be a civil war in the United States of America Um, the thing that people should fear is basically the new Cold War, the ramping up of tensions with China, for example. There's an issue going on with Taiwan where tensions are sort of peaking. Um, You know, Russiagate was not good in the sense that it sort of raised tensions with Russia. Um, Of course, you have the neocons and the warhawks and the imperialists are just itching for a war with Iran as well, for example. We're starving Venezuela to death and sanctioning them out the wazoo. And all these things are massive destabilizing forces uh, that put everybody in danger. And then, you know, you don't even have to bring up the obvious ones, climate change. Uh, But I'll get to the most important issue, which really should be front and center in just a second. Um, Russell talked earlier in the clip, and you didn't see it there, but he talked about how 50% of Trump voters want to secede, and even 41% of Biden voters want to secede. And I covered, a, I covered that poll that came out not that long ago on my show as well, and this was Russell weighing in on that and bringing in the Matthew McConaughey clip. Uh, I'm not uh, – those numbers are surprising, but the other portion of the poll, I think, actually has the answer embedded in it. Because I forget the specific number, so forgive me for that. But it's something like 80% of the country. So people on the right and the left are like, well, I mean, the problem is fundamentally that the government is run of, by, and for the wealthy, the elites, the corporations, the billionaires. And that's the fundamental problem. So it is sort of true that even though partisanship is at an all-time high, it is sort of an illusion. It is sort of a mirage because – People do get mired in the culture war and they're at each other's throats over that stuff. But really, there's way more agreement than you think on the material things that matter most, like the economy, like endless war and foreign policy. Um, Russell Brand says that compassion and love is fundamental. This is very, you know, he, this is a, a consistent theme for his YouTube channel and his commentary is that he wants everybody to sort of, come down to earth a little bit and have compassion for your brothers and sisters, even when you massively disagree. Uh, Matthew McConaughey says, quote, I don't see the way out is through politics. I don't see 
the way out is that taking positions on issues, you know, that, that are divisive. And then he goes on to say, we should really be talking about what does leadership mean? What does progress mean? Why are our trust levels so low in the government? So I'll, I'll answer that last question for you. Corruption is the reason our trust level is so low in the government. But I really, I really don't agree with McConaughey's sidestepping of answering direct questions on policy positions. So he says, like, you know, he basically doesn't see the value in taking positions on political issues as he wants to run for governor of Texas. And it's like, but you sort of have to do that. That's par for the course. You can't say, I want to run for this leadership position, but I'm not going to tell you what I think on any of the specific issues. You're really putting the cart before the horse if you say, I'm not going to tell you where I stand on this stuff, but vote for me because I'm me and I believe in good things and I'm against bad things. So, like, let's come together. Let's have love. Let's have compassion. Let's be leaders. Let's uh, progress into the future. Progress towards what? What do you define as good? Would progressing towards having no abortion be good to you? Or would you like to progress towards giving people more freedom of choice on that front? Would you like to progress towards higher wages? Or would you like to progress in a way that appeases corporations and so you don't raise wages and you give the corporations a tax cut? You can't, like, I really don't like, I've criticized a lot of people who've decided I'm going to run for office, but then they don't have their platform out yet. The very first thing you need to release is your platform. The very first thing you need to release. So on that front, I think Matthew McConaughey is sort of being a master uh, sophist, where he's saying, vote for me because I'm me and I believe in good things. Well, what are those good things? You have to define it. You have to tell me what your stances are on the political issues. Now, don't get me wrong. You could run on those issues and say, hey, here's where I stand, but I also want to make a direct appeal to voters on the right and the left. You could do that. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, But he's not doing that. He's saying, I want to appeal to voters on the right and the left, but also I'm just not going to tell you what I think on the specific issues. Well, then why are you running for governor? You can't run for governor in a non-ideological way. And when he says, I don't think the answer is through politics, everything is politics. Everything is political. Every aspect of your life, from when you wake up to when you go to sleep, there's an element of politics runs directly through it. Um, And Russell goes on to make an interesting point. He says, is it the fact that centralized power uh, is there to represent transnational corporations? That's the problem. So in other words, he's saying when you consolidate power in a centralized way or in a national way in the U.S., federal way, so if the federal government, this giant entity, entity on the top, has all the power, is the downside of that that you're going to have transnational corporations take over and just sort of run everything? And the implication is, I don't know if this is what he means, but the implication is if you sort of break up that power and bring it down more to the local level or the state level, that you wouldn't have that problem. Um, But... On that front, I think I just disagree with Russell because the transnational corporations would just adjust and then buy politicians at the state level and the local level. They already buy politicians at the state level and the local level. It just requires less money to do so. They're even easier to buy off. So it's not like, oh, if we just move to a form of government that's less centralized, that then that would fix the problem because the corporations can't have as much sway. No, the people who run the corporations, I mean – they're not idiots. They're totally greedy, totally corrupt, but they're not idiots. And they would just adjust and corrupt state politics and local politics even more than they already do, and they already do it a lot. Um, but I, I agree with the final thing Russell said, which is the sides aren't even a million miles apart from one another. See, that's true. And this gets to 
my main takeaway from, from this segment, which is the main issue is the corruption. So that's the issue that affects all other issues. And the relying heavy and leaning heavy into the culture war stuff is a colossal distraction that works phenomenally well. If you get people to yell at each other 24-7 over Dr. Seuss or over whatever viral video of somebody being an asshole is, you know, big on that day, then rich people could just keep rigging the system and run out the back door with all the money and the influence and the power. So the real issue is that you have ExxonMobil and Chevron buying politicians, Goldman Sachs, giant financial institutions buying politicians, uh, Honeywell, Boeing, Raytheon, the military industrial complex buying politicians, and they rig the rules and the laws in their favor. And so that's why you have a tax policy today that is more kind to the well-to-do than it is to working families. So that's the main issue. Now, here's the thing. I truly believe if you address the corruption, you get rid of the corruption, and you have a more representative system where politicians represent the people and not the corporations, that it brings down the temperature massively in the culture war. I mean, political science research has known this for a very, very long time, that in, you only have a demagogue like Trump get power when people feel like the system is just totally non-responsive. So use a metaphorical brick through the window of the establishment. So if you improve people's material well-being and their conditions, then they're going to be less at each other's throats naturally. Now, am I saying there will be no culture war at all if you get rid of corruption and if you address the needs of the people? No. All I'm saying is uh, the obsession with it and the temperature being so high, it wouldn't be like that. The, there wouldn't be as much of an obsession with it, and the temperature would be brought down a lot. You know, it's the same reason why uh, bigotry and xenophobia peaks when the entire country is struggling. Because then what happens is the elites can scapegoat poor black and brown people and say, see, white working class voter, it's really not our fault for rigging the rules in favor of us and against you. Get mad at the poor black and brown immigrant who's taking your job. And so that xenophobia and bigotry is it, it's able to work and take hold more when the system is rotten and corrupt and rigged against you. So if you unrig the system, all that other stuff naturally becomes less of a problem. It'll still be a problem, and we still have to address it head on on its terms, but it would be much less of a problem. And I say the same thing to the idea of uh, seceding from the union, which this poll showed half of Trump voters want to do and almost half of Biden voters want to do. Am I against it, period, in all circumstances? No, of course not. If all else fails, yes, then something like that would make sense. But I don't think all else will fail. I think that once you address the corruption, which we all agree is the main problem, then fewer people will want to secede. So anytime a nation is healthy and thriving and doing well economically and the people are being represented, all these other social ills become less and less of a problem. You'll, people become more tolerant and more open and nicer when their material well-being is taken care of. So, you know, the answer to me is get the money out of the political system and also implement a sort of national direct ballot initiative where we have direct democracy at the federal level, where the American people, every time they vote for president, they could vote on whatever the top five issues of, you know, the current political moment are.
So wouldn't it be great if we could all, next time we vote for president, you get a direct say on whether or not marijuana should be legalized nationwide. You get a direct say on whether or not the minimum wage should be a living wage. You get a direct say on whether or not we should end the illegal wars. And the list goes on and on. You get a direct say on whether or not we should have Medicare for all. If we all voted directly on that. Because I have no doubt, since the people aren't corrupt, you would see 89% of Democrats vote the right way. 70% of independents vote the right way. And even like 50% of Republicans would probably vote the right way on the most important issues. Because, again, there is more agreement than you think there is. It's this, it's incredibly misleading, and it's this charade to make people think that, no, actually, you guys disagree on everything. No, you don't. You disagree on some culture war stuff, and you talk about that 24-7 when we're bearing the lead about the areas where people agree when it comes to corruption, health care, wages, war, and other things. So, um, I don't know what Matthew McConaughey is doing. I don't think he's running, if he's even running yet, I don't know. But it doesn't look like he's very serious and is willing to take policy stands, which he needs to do. But either way, I don't think there's going to be a civil war. And I don't think the solution is just to, you know, break up the current system and and bring it down to a more local and state level, because then the corruption would just infect that. The real answer is, Get rid of the corruption on top of giving the people a more direct say. All right, next, y'all. Let's continue. So John Stewart is back. He has a new show. I think it's a show with Apple or something. Um, he went on CNN to talk about that and talk about the news of the day. And uh, this, this is an interesting exchange with, Jake Tapper, where he kind of tells him, like, stop over-focusing on Trump. And you were talking a second ago about identifying the weak points in the guardrails of democracy. It's also obvious, and I know you've spoken about this in the past, that Donald Trump has also identified those weak points. He is now endorsing candidates for Secretary of State in battleground states, candidates who are all in on the big lie. Uh, in, you know, in Arizona. So I think we make a mistake focusing this all on on Donald Trump as though he's, I don't know, Magneto and some incredible supervillain that has changed the very nature and uh, temperature of the United States. Like, he's just been an affected vessel. But again, like, he's not singing new songs. This is something, he's maybe singing them a little better than you know, Goldwater, but but I, I think it's a mistake to, to focus it all on this one individual mm-hmm. and not to focus it more on, you know, the idea that power is its own reward, whether it be in the financial industry or in government, like power doesn't seed itself. And unless we can figure out a better way to balance that, power for, you know, for, for workers and voters and, and different groups, we'll be vulnerable. You know, I don't, I don't know that autocracy is purely the domain of, of Donald Trump. I think that we all have a bit of a tendency to be like, to grant amnesty to people that are doing things that we would prefer even if that means that they're slightly undemocratic. There's many times where I think to myself, like, just do an executive 
this one individual comes at the price of systems and dynamics that have been in place long before this cat ever learned how to surf those waves. I think that what's going on is it turns out, and we've learned a lot of this in recent decades, but especially maybe the last four or five years because Donald Trump was so disruptive and so willing uh, to challenge norms, we've learned that a lot of the American system is built on the honor system. And that only works, of course, if you care about or even have a sense of honor. And I know that, the, that you're not so much concerned about uh, an autocracy taking root as you are in the minority party figuring out how to rule despite the fact that they do not enjoy majority support. Well, I think there's always been the danger that a minority of voices would have a majority of power. I mean, in, in, in a lot of ways, that's, that's baked into the, the way that the system was created and enacted. Um, and I, don't, I, I just think in, in general, coming up with remedies to that have proven to be really difficult because the, the larger issues is, you know, we've elevated money and, and corporate power to this one level. We've diminished sort of uh, pure democratic power to another level, and we're wildly out of balance. Wow. That was fascinating to watch. So that's like the second or third time that I've seen that clip, and I actually got more out of it each time. Um, because I just noticed Tapper was sort of not capable of digesting the point and listening to what John Stewart was saying and getting it. So he says, listen, don't overfocus on Trump. You're looking at him like he's a supervillain or like Magneto. Quote, he's not singing a new song. He's not singing a new song. So you know what that means? He's a demagogue, and demagogues throughout history have existed, and they've tried to channel somewhat justified rage to their own personal, greedy, narcissistic, power-hungry ends. And so he references Barry Goldwater, who tried to do it. Uh, Pat Buchanan is another one who was Trump before Trump came up. Um, he says, quote, power doesn't seed itself. We need to give workers and voters, he even says boaters, which is kind of hilarious that he said that. Uh, we need to give workers and boaters and, and regular people a say that they currently don't have. And then the... Uh, the most important points are, he says, quote, you focus on this individual instead of the system, and we've elevated money and corporate power. See, that's the problem. The problem, is, the problem isn't just Trump, and just to be clear, Trump, of course, is a problem. He's a huge problem, and he's his own unique problem in a sense, but the real problem was the groundwork that was laid which brought us to Donald Trump. The real problem was the complete and utter institutional failure of a system that was so broken that there was even a remote possibility that we could get a Donald Trump who won and became president. Think about how reviled our institutions must be for a guy like Trump to end up winning, a guy who's a clear charlatan, conman, fraud, blowhard, but a lot of people said, you know what, let's roll the dice because at least... He is a message 
to the establishment that we're not taking this anymore. It's a brick through the window. Now, fundamentally, Donald Trump ended up serving the establishment because he's a charlatan and a con man and a fraud. But the real issue is the groundwork that was laid well before Trump got into power. I mean, it really goes back to probably the Reagan era. Everything that happened from then and on, which led to Donald Trump. So you had the Republican Party totally sold out, bought and owned by corporate America and the military-industrial complex. But then you have the Democratic Party, the new Democratic coalition, which decided, hey, that seems like a good way to raise a lot of money for our campaigns. So why don't we act half like the Republicans? And the Democratic Party no longer was the party of workers. It also became the party of Wall Street and Big Pharma and the military-industrial complex. And then you got Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton's biggest accomplishments were all Republican ideas. Welfare reform, which gutted welfare. The repealing of Glass-Steagall, which was a massive deregulation of banking that had separated commercial banking and investment banking. They said, no, let's get rid of that. So we had this casino capitalist system where regular depositor money was blown by speculative investors. And of course, we had the giant crash. You had George W. Bush, who also deregulated, also cut taxes for the rich. Donald Trump did the same thing. Barack Obama, unfortunately, in many ways, was a continuation of that broken system. He didn't deviate much from it. I mean, his health care reform was a former right-wing idea. came from the Heritage Foundation, a right-wing think tank. So the problem is corporations and billionaires have totally bought the system, and they own the system, and they own the politicians, and they rigged the rules against workers and in their favor. So unions absolutely obliterated, wages completely stagnant, taxes low for the wealthy, high for the working class, healthcare system totally for-profit scam on top of a scam within a scam. At every level, the system is completely corrupted, disgusting, rotten, and broken. And so Trump came up and postured as an outsider populist who also fed on xenophobia and bigotry And the country was ripe for that because everybody was hurting, so that he was scapegoating and it worked. And Jake Tapper can't help but keep going back to Trump's the main problem. So the main problem with what Jake Tapper is saying is that there's this underlying implication of his arguments that if we just go back to the pre-Trump era, well, that's when everything was relatively okay. But it wasn't, Jake. What came before Trump is the groundwork that led to Trump. So if you want to go back to what it was like just before Trump, there's going to be another kind of Trump that comes up. And maybe the next one will be even worse. So that's John Stewart's point. He's like, you need to focus on the system. The the problem is we elevated money and corporate power, and then that led to a demagogue uh, taking advantage of that. And instead of wanting to fix the underlying situation that brought us Trump, you just want to hyper-focus on Trump like he's the only problem. Now, by the way, I'm not saying he's not a problem. Of course, he's a massive problem. And in some ways, he's a unique problem because he did – you know, any sort of norms and, and, and rules that were in place, uh, he violated what remained of them. Now, by the way, they were largely ignored previously, like by George W. Bush, Dick Cheney, the neocons, but he, was, he went even further with it, you know, denying the outcome of, of an election which has been proven that Biden won. I mean, they had over 60 court cases over it, and Donald Trump lost almost every single one. There's no evidence, even with the audit that they did in Arizona, it said Biden won by even more. 
So he is a problem, and he is in many ways a unique problem, and that stuff does need to be called out. The problem with mainstream media is that's all they know how to do, is just call out Trump. That's it. They don't know how to talk about the underlying problems which led to Trump and the broken system, because, by the way, they're beneficiaries of that system as well. They're an elite group with no accountability whatsoever. They've been wrong on virtually every major political question in the last four decades. And John Stewart's sort of holding the mirror up to him and saying, you keep focusing on this guy like he's Magneto, like he's a supervillain. He's not singing a new song. He's a demagogue. He's a charlatan. We've had them throughout time. You need to question why it is that the charlatan actually got power this time. Why did he actually win? Why did it actually work this time? Maybe because the system is more broken than it's ever been. The problem is we've elevated money and corporate power. The problem is the corruption of the system. The problem is it's rigged against regular people, and regular people know it, so they're reaching for any kind of answer they could possibly get, even if it's a wrong answer. That's better in their mind than a perpetuation of the status quo, which is exactly what Hillary Clinton represented. Now, in the 2020 election, people realized, you know, Trump's a fraud too, and so it was just a sort of a backlash election. I'm not voting for Biden. I'm just voting against Trump. But we still have all of those underlying problems, and CNN is totally incapable of dealing with that question in a serious and honest way. And John Stewart, as per usual, is leagues beyond them. So wonderful job here from John Stewart. I think he's right. CNN, MSNBC, they overfocus on Trump. You see more Trump stories on CNN and MSNBC than you see Biden stories than Biden's president. He's the one that has the power right now. And by the way, guess what? Final point on this. The media is going to end up doing what they did in 2016 which is they can't help themselves. They keep talking about Trump. It helps them with their ratings, and they just have this obsession. In 2016, that's one of the things that led to him winning, is they couldn't shut the fuck up about him. And now you could say, well, Kyle, it was negative press. It wasn't positive press, so shouldn't that have hurt Trump? Only if you're good at doing the negative press, and they're not good at doing the negative press. So in a weird way, there's a backlash effect, and sometimes it helps them. So they're going to end up bringing to fruition the thing they don't want the most, which is Trump maybe getting to power again. So um, John Stewart absolutely nailed it. I'm glad he's back. I'm glad he has a new show. I don't agree with the guy on everything, but he's way, way better than any of the morons who are on cable news. Okay, next. Here we go. So this is a really interesting story that went super viral, son. So Sanjay Gupta went on Joe Rogan's podcast. And I highly recommend everybody listen to the entire thing because I do think you're getting a little bit of a misleading picture in the media and even on social media as to how the conversation went. Because there's plenty of time in the podcast where um, it's actually, they're not at each other's throats and they're not arguing and they're cordial and they're having a nice conversation. For example, um, Joe Rogan gives Sanjay Gupta credit because Sanjay Gupta very publicly flipped his position on medical marijuana, and I think on marijuana in general, where previously he was against it. He was basically saying it's bogus. It's just an excuse for people to get high. And then he looked at the evidence and made an honest assessment and said, I was dead wrong. And so Joe gave him credit over that. Um, Listen to the entire podcast. It's very interesting. But there's a few moments that blew up. Um, One of those moments is on the issue of ivermectin. Joe had gotten COVID not too long ago. He, quote, threw the kitchen sink at it when he got COVID. He took a number of different medications, uh, including ivermectin. He took uh, ZPAC. He took monoclonal antibodies, which is actually the same treatment that Trump got when 
Trump had COVID. And uh, I'm missing like two or three other things he took. But the media went after him for taking ivermectin, and they said that Joe Rogan is taking, quote, horse dewormer. Um, now, Joe was really pissed off about that because, of course, he was taking the human version of ivermectin, which was prescribed to him by a doctor. And so this was massively misleading, and he flat out says, listen, they were lying about me. Uh, so we had on Sanjay Gupta. They went back and forth over this. I'm going to play the video for you. Then I'm going to show you what happened afterwards where Don Lemon on CNN was coping over how this exchange went. So first, take a look at the original exchange between Joe and Sanjay Gupta over ivermectin. I'm glad you're better. I'm glad you're only glad for the day. You're probably the only one at CNN that's glad. No, 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 no. no. Yeah, the rest of them are all lying about me taking horse medication. <laughs> we should talk about that. That bothered you. It should bother you, too. They're well, lying at your network about people taking human drugs versus drugs. It is calling it a horse to is not a flattering thing. I get it's that. It's a lie. It's a lie on a news network, it's and it's a lie that's a willing... That's a lie that they're conscious of. It's not a mistake. Yeah. They're unfavorably framing it as a veterinary medicine. Well, the FDA put this thing out. You saw that. Did you see the thing that the FDA put out? What did the FDA put out? <laughs> it was a tweet. It was snarky. I admit it. They said, you are not a horse, you are not a cow, stop taking this stuff, or something like that. Why would you say that when you're talking about a drug that's been given out to billions and billions of people, a drug that was responsible for one of the inventors of it making the Nobel Prize in 2015? Yeah. yeah. No. A, a drug that's been shown to stop viral replication in vitro. You know that, right? I, I, Why would they lie and say that's horse dewormer? I can afford people medicine, motherfucker. <laughs> this is ridiculous. It's just a lie. I don't think anyone is sick. But don't you think that a lie like that is dangerous on a news network? Work when you know that they know they're lying. You know that they know that I took medicine. Like, here it is. This is ivermectin. You got it right here. here. Somebody gave it to me. All right, hang on. I, I, you, it seems like we're, we're like going so fast. Like, I feel like I'm missing. I'm missing. You think I want that that's a problem that your news network not, lies? Well, I don't, I don't know. What do they say? They lied when they said I was taking horse dewormer. First of all, it was prescribed to me by a doctor. Yeah, yeah. Along they with a bunch of other medications. If you got a human. Pill because there were people that were taking it, the veterinary medication. And I, you're not, obviously. You got it from a doctor, so that, it shouldn't be called that. Ivermectin can be a very effective medication for parasitic disease. And as you say, it's probably, you know, I think what, a quarter billion people have taken it around the world? More. That. Way more. So, way more. Billions of people have taken it. Can I just come back to the one? I want to talk about that. No, 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 no. no, no, no. You have to, you have, before we get to that, does it bother you that the news network you work for? Out and out lied. Well, outright lied about me taking horse dewormer. They, they, they shouldn't have said that. Why did they do that? I don't know. You didn't ask? I didn't think they were. You were the medical guy over there. I didn't ask. I should have asked before they did about such glee. No. Yes, you did. I watched. I watched. I watched. You watched. No, I don't think there's glee. I don't. I, no one takes. Joe says he's taking livestock drug despite warnings. Yeah. Jamie had to pull this up. You want to play it? The sheet. The sheet. This is your news network. I'm going to watch. Let's see. I'm going to watch. Rogan telling he had 13 million Instagram followers, and he was treated with several drugs, and he included ivermectin on the list, a drug used for livestock. The FDA and the CDC warned against using to treat COVID. <sighs> Turns out I got COVID. Look at this. Oh, good. Monocle. The original video. I look like shit there. Do you know that? I would be looking at it. What's Prednisone. I don't think. What's enough, Jim? I don't think Aaron had glee. Well, it was more Brian Stelter was the gleeful one. But the point is, that's a lie. It can be used for humans. I, I get it. I, it's not just could be used for humans. Mm-hmm. It's often used for humans along with all the other drugs I took, all human drugs. Yes. They know it's a human drug. It's, 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 it can, it's right. But, and they lied. The thing it's is, defamatory. It, it is. It is a, yeah, they shouldn't have done that. I get defamatory, right? Well, I don't know if it's defamatory. I bet it is. I'm not a lawyer. 
I'm not a lawyer. It's but, a lie. Well, see, here's the thing. It, it, can we, you can have nuanced discussions about this. <laughs> no, you can't. You can't yeah. have nuanced discussions about lying about someone taking horseshoe. There was no glee, by the way, from, from her. She well, not anyone, watch her. Anyone, takes, uh, anyone takes people's illness. Oh, oh yes, they, they do. They don't want you, you to get stop it. sick, Joe. Yes, they do. They, they want you to get sick. That I got healthy. I, I, they, that's one thing they didn't report on, the fact that I was negative five days later. And working out six days later. Well, six days after infection, I was back to the gym. I'm glad. Oh, great. I'm glad you, you do. I really Me am. Too. I, I Thank you. Most of I'm glad you're glad. You're a nice guy. Most of the people I know, I think, would be glad that you. I don't think that there's uh, anything. There's a lot of people out there that weren't glad. But my point is, you're working for a news organization. If they're lying about a comedian taking horse medication, what are they telling us about Russia? What are they telling us about Syria? Do you, not, do you understand that that's why people get concerned? I think that last point there is the most important point, that it is true. People do not trust our institutions generally, but definitely don't trust the media. The, me- the trust in media is at a historic low right now, as I'm talking to you guys. And that is so thoroughly earned. Because remember, they've been on the wrong side of virtually every war going back decades, even the major newspapers, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, you name it, um, they've been wrong, and they've been advocating for invasions and, and bombings, and they do it based on lies or misinformation. They basically are just stenographers to the military-industrial complex and the Pentagon and the intelligence agencies. They're reliably wrong about that stuff. They always lie and mislead on economic stuff, like the fake fact-checks of Bernie when it came to Medicare for All, uh, where they're just siding with industry over, you know, statements from Bernie that were banal and provably, verifiably correct if you look at all the evidence around the world when it comes to healthcare systems. Um, and Joe's correct. There is a crisis of trust for the media. And I do think stuff like this is one of the main reasons why, because were there people who were taking horse paste, the horse version of ivermectin and the, the veterinary version of the medicine? Yes, because there were a number of reports on that where there was a massive uptick in calls to poison control centers about um, basically overdosing on horse paste. I think the ivermectin horse paste is a way higher concentration, which is not safe for humans, and people are having all sorts of issues, bowel issues. And, uh, so that was – there were people who were taking that, and if you don't believe me on it, there were like – I don't know if they're still up, but there were like, you know – Reddit forums where people are talking openly about, oh, media doesn't want us to know about this, and so I'm going to take, it's the same version if it's the horse one or the human one, I'm going to take this. So there were people who were taking it, and there were negative consequences associated with that. Um, but of course, Joe wasn't, and it's tr- the media knew that. Of course, the media knew he was taking the human version and not the vet version, but they thought it was a cutesy way to own him because other people were taking the vet version. So... They think like, oh, this is, this is dangerous and this is misleading. And also they just don't like Joe Rogan. They don't. They don't because he sort of represents everything they don't represent. So, he, I mean, he gets phenomenal numbers for his show. That's obvious. He's the number one podcast in the world. Um, but I read a great article that talked about how he's fundamentally the opposite of them. Like they have their narrative. They have their um, elite worldview and they work backwards from their conclusions all the time, Joe is almost so open-minded that he'll talk to anybody, and it's the opposite of, like, cancel culture in a way. You know, like, if he's willing to talk to both me and Ben Shapiro, which he does, he's sort of 
he holds to a value set that's the opposite of them with their narrative and their closed-minded views and their uh, perpetuating of a single narrative. He's like, I'll talk to Ben Shapiro, I'll talk to Steven Crowder, I'll talk to Kyle Kalinske, I'll talk to Jimmy Dore, I'll talk to Abby Martin, and the list goes on and on. So they don't like him. They don't like him. So they thought it was a cutesy way to sort of own him, to say he's taking horse dewormer when he's not. He's taking the human version. When, by the way, guys, it's not like there wasn't a response you could have made that was critical and reasonable of Joe Rogan. And I know because I made that criticism. You know, look, the studies on ivermectin, at, the, at best, they're not conclusive that it helps. At best. Now, Joe said, well, in vitro it kills viruses. Yeah, but your body's not, it's not just in vitro. It's totally different when you're actually putting it in your body. And all of the – originally, ivermectin maybe showed some promise that, hey, this could help fight COVID-19. But there was the same thing with hydroxychloroquine. And then when we got more studies, we realized that's actually not true. It doesn't really help with it. And right now, the same thing's happening with ivermectin, where originally there was some promise, and then recent studies have shown there's, it's not really great for treating COVID. So if you wanted to make the case – hey, man, you're taking this drug, and at best, it's uh, not conclusive yet. It has not been approved by the FDA. Um, at worst, it just, it's, just doesn't work. It's not the right drug. If you wanted to make that argument, that would have been totally fine. That would have been reasonable. I would agree with the media over Joe, but they didn't do that. They said it, he was taking horse dewormer. He wasn't taking horse dewormer, and they did that because they don't like him and because they wanted to own him. So... It, it is a real shame, too, because, again, it's not like there aren't reasonable criticisms. So another area where I would disagree with Joe is the vaccine. Now, my view on the vaccine, based on the evidence and the data and everything I've seen, is that it works and it's great. And, I, you know, I just had the article up before, but there was a French study of over 22 million people that found vaccines cut severe COVID risk by 90%. So hospitalization severe illness and death. It's cut by 90% if you take the vaccine. That is approved by the FDA. That is approved by uh, bodies, the governmental bodies all around the world. And uh, again, the data is clear. So there are criticisms that you can make, but you have to be reasonable and measured and nuanced and intelligent and correct. You can't just lie or misstate and own and take glee in that fact. And especially because when you're dealing with somebody who's the most popular podcaster in the world, you're going to have to tread carefully in your criticisms because, it, you know, if you bring an anvil to drop on its head, people are going to say, you're not really being fair. And they're right. You're not really being fair. So Joe has, has said that he doesn't think that, like, young, healthy people really need to take the vaccine. And even on that, I disagree with him because herd immunity is really important. And if you're a young, healthy person, right now it's only approved for, I think, age 12 and up. But if you're 12 and up, you want to take the vaccine because you can still get COVID. And, yeah, you're probably going to be fine. The overwhelming majority of the evidence shows you're probably going to be fine if you get COVID and you're 12 or 13. It doesn't affect kids nearly as bad as older folks. But you can still pass it to mom or dad or grandma or grandpa if you're 12 or 13 and you have COVID. So you might be fine, but you can pass it to somebody who maybe won't be fine. So that's really important. And so that's an area where I disagree with Joe, where I say, no, actually, everybody who they approve the vaccine for, they should take the vaccine. Now, are there some rare cases where even fully vaxxed people end up dying? Yeah, but usually there's a perfectly reasonable explanation for that. Like Colin Powell just died, but come to find out, 
he had a specific kind of blood cancer, which made his body enable to fight off infections. So he had blood cancer, he had Parkinson's, and he was 84 years old, so he was vaccinated and he died. That's an example of the smaller percentage of people who are fully vaxxed and they can die of COVID. But again, French study, over 22 million people, vaccines cut severe COVID risk by 90%. So CNN has fucked up in so many ways here because you, you have zero credibility. And now Rogan has all the credibility. And by the way, Rogan will be the first to tell you, like, you shouldn't really take your medical advice from me in the first place. And he's right about that. You shouldn't. But you know what else? You shouldn't take it from CNN either because they're lying to you. So you need to look at the evidence and the data and look at the macro picture, not the micro picture, not the anecdotes, not Nicki Minaj's cousin's friends with a swollen ball sack. Don't get caught up in the anecdotes. You have to look at the data. You have to look at the macro picture and judge accordingly. And, you know, CNN really blew all their credibility. I mean, they blew it a long time ago. But this is a great example of Joe's right. I mean, a lot of the people, maybe a handful of the hosts, genuinely didn't know that, you know, there's a difference between the horse dewormer version, the veterinary medication, and the human version. But I think most of them knew, and they said it anyway. So I think Joe's right. Now, is it actually defamatory in the sense that Joe can win a lawsuit? I don't think so, because you have to prove intent. And it's hard to prove that, you know, they lied with malice against you. They could just claim ignorance. They could just claim, hey, I didn't know, or I read it from this headline, and I thought it was true, so I repeated it. Whatever. But it definitely is misleading, and I think it is a lie. Whether or not you can prove it in a court of law is a separate question. Um, so CNN uh, was really hurting over this. Now, again, watch the whole podcast with Sanjay Gupta. A lot of it, they're not at each other's throats or arguing, and it's a perfectly reasonable conversation. Um, but CNN did not like this exchange on ivermectin because it, it really makes them look like what they are, which is they were lying and misleading about Rogan. Um, now, let me, just real quick, side note, there are some people who were just joking about Rogan taking horse medication, and for them, it's like, okay, you're joking and the intent was a joke, that's fine. But for a news network, no, there is no, you, you can't make that claim, because that's not what you were trying to do. But anyway, so Don Lemon talks to Sanjay Gupta, and look at what they say. He did say something about ivermectin that I think wasn't actually correct about CNN and lying, okay? Ivermectin is a drug that is commonly used as a horse dewormer. So it is not a lie to say that the drug is used as a horse dewormer. I, I, I think that's important, and it is not approved for COVID. Correct? That's right. That's correct. It, it, it is not approved for COVID, and... You're right. I mean, the FDA even put out a, a statement saying, you know, basically reminding people it was a strange sort of message from the FDA, but they said, you're not a horse, you're not a cow, stop taking this stuff, is essentially what they said, referring to ivermectin. Now, I think what, what Joe's point but is... It's been approved for humans, and, but not necessarily for COVID, right? Yeah. That's correct. It's been, it's been used for a parasitic disease for something called river blindness, and it's been very effective for that. But, you know, just because it works for one thing doesn't mean it works for something else. And, you know, there's still a few ongoing clinical trials around ivermectin, but for the most part, if you look at the data, there's no evidence that it, that it really works here. When Joe got sick, he took ivermectin. He also took monoclonal antibodies, which is, you know, an infusion of these antibodies. So he took both those things. It's, it's very likely it was the monoclonal antibodies that made him feel better so quickly. 
so Don Lemon there is trying desperately to save face and save credibility for CNN, and that did not work at all. That didn't work at all. He said, well, Rogan took a drug that is commonly used as a horse dewormer. Okay, but that's not what the claim was. They said he took horse dewormer. Those are totally separate claims. Those are totally separate claims. So he sidestepped it there. He did a little sleight of hand move there. They, guys, when I get something wrong, I try to come out here and say, I was wrong about this or that. That's what I do. They don't do that. And Don Lemon knows it's a completely different dosage. One is a veterinary medication. One is a human medication. You know, uh, pro tip, when one is a paste version and it's got a picture of a horse on it, that's the vet version. That's obviously not what Joe Rogan took. So why can't they just admit it? Now, Sanjay Gupta did try to say, well, Rogan's point is there, but then Lemon sort of cut him off a little bit. Um, I do think Sanjay Gupta... It is an honest actor, and I even think Joe would tell you he's an honest actor. But I think Don Lemon is trying to play defense for his network there. But, dude, it is too little too late. What you should have said is, sorry, we're, you know, shouldn't have done that. We were wrong. You weren't taking horse dewormer. There are some people who did take it. There are some people who did take the vet version. That is dangerous. That's not okay. Uh, They shouldn't take it. You can also say that second part of what he said, which is, the evidence is not great that this thing works for COVID. That's totally fine and perfectly reasonable to say, and I, that's true. But they blew their credibility. And if you've been following this stuff for a long time, they blew their credibility a long time ago, advocating for every single war, being dead wrong on a number of major issues. I mean, again, the media got Russiagate wrong. They pretended Donald Trump was owned by Vladimir Putin and he was a puppet of Putin. That wasn't remotely true. You know, um, advocating for war in Syria, Brian Williams saying, look at the beauty of our weapons taking off to bomb a Syrian airport. Does that sound like objective reporting to you? Is that what that sounds like? It's amazing that, and by the way, there will be no consequences. That's the part that I feel most personally, because you guys know how it works on YouTube. You guys know that there's a, you know, a ranking system, and some people are deranked in the algorithm, some people are on the top of the algorithm, and I think it's a tiered system. I think there are levels to it. And if you're CNN or MSNBC or Fox News, it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter how wrong you are. You still get pushed out there, shown to new people, recommended all over the place, and if you're somebody in my position or any other independent new media outlet, They don't trust you. They don't know what you're going to say. So you're sort of pushed to the bottom of the algorithm and you're not showed to as many new people. And it's like the thing that drives me crazy is it doesn't matter how many instances like this we have. It doesn't matter how many illegal wars they advocate for. It doesn't matter how many stupid conspiracies like Russiagate they push out there. It doesn't matter how unethical and dishonest they are. I mean, look at the whole Cuomo thing on CNN where he was – with his brother in the meetings, you know, coming up with a defensive strategy against Me Too allegations, and then he would go out on TV and be a reporter at night. He did propaganda for him when there wasn't a scandal and said he's a great governor, but then when a scandal breaks, he doesn't cover it, doesn't talk about it. In fact, he's trying to help his brother behind the scenes. The media has no credibility, and they always violate ethics uh, in, in journalism, but there's no punishment for them ever. Now, by the way, I'm actually not saying you should punish them. I'm saying remove the chains from new media and independent media and allow us to thrive. Now, are there some independent new media outlets that are bad and terrible and also say incorrect things? And I'm looking at you, right-wing media. Of course, of course. But 
that's the price you pay for freedom of speech and a free press and a fair, open and honest meritocratic algorithm is good things will rise to the top and also some bad things will rise to the top. But right now, it is rigidly controlled and the Ministry of Truth are the networks that are more wrong than anybody else ever. And it happens all the time. I mean, Fox News and One American News Network and Newsmax have been spreading anti-vaccine propaganda relentlessly. And there's going to be no, you know, punishment for that. Jordan Chariton is another great example of this. He shot the footage on January 6th on the ground of the riot. And he posted on his YouTube channel. It got pulled from his YouTube channel, but he licensed that footage to CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, and all the, the nightly news outlets or some of the big networks. And they were able to put it on their channel, and it didn't get pulled down, and it didn't get demonetized, and they weren't deranked. It is more than a two-tier system. There's like probably six or seven or eight tiers or something like that. But they get to lie. They get to mislead. And there's no consequences whatsoever. And I think the reason why this feels good to so many people is that, uh, you know, Rogan is kind of holding the network accountable. And even after he does that, Don Lemon can't help himself but put up a terrible defense of CNN, his network. Even with the chains on independent new media and podcasts and stuff, they're going to continue to rise and get more numbers, just slower than they normally would, because this is a competition. (laughs) The competition is like weaselly, slimy little people pushing their shitty narrative, defending people who are in the club and besmirching people who are outside of the club. And uh, I think people see it for what it is, you know? Again, I have some disagreements with Joe on COVID stuff. I think you should definitely get the vaccine. And it saved, I think there was a study that said it already saved. Let me look this up as I speak. I don't want to misspeak as I talk about this stuff. COVID vaccine saves 200,000 lives. I think that's the number, but I'm going to fact check myself live on air here. Here you go. COVID-19 vaccines saved nearly 280,000 lives in the U.S. Okay. Uh, COVID-19 vaccines saved hundreds of thousands of lives and prevented more than a million hospitalizations in the U.S., according to new estimates from researchers at Yale University and the Commonwealth Fund. So... I think that's accurate. I think that's true. So I have some disagreements with Joe on the vaccine. He says, uh, you know, people should get vaccinated unless, you know, you're young and healthy. You don't necessarily need it. I disagree. Herd immunity is a thing. You want to get vaccinated if you're young to protect mom and dad and grandma and grandpa. You want to accidentally spread it to them and then they die. Um, So I have disagreements with him on that. I have disagreements with him on ivermectin in the sense that even the human version, at best, it's not conclusive yet that it works. At worst, it just doesn't work. Um, But... He has a lot more credibility in this crazy media environment because, yes, CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News are like the biggest purveyors of misinformation, and they don't get treated like that. And so Joe sort of unmasked them here, and for that, I think everybody's happy. Okay. Next. So Ben Shapiro had Barry Weiss on his show, and um, there's a million parts of this I could show you. I watched the entire thing. This is why, this is why um, I'm a tortured soul, and this is why you guys support this show and watch this show, because, you know, I have to do the dirty work that a lot of people don't want to do, watching an entire podcast with Barry Weiss and, uh, and Ben Shapiro. So anyway, um, they clearly think they're heroes. 
I also uh, watched or listened to Barry Weiss on Brian Stelter's podcast. I love Barry Weiss made the argument that like I'm just doing what the media should be doing. I'm covering the stories that should get covered all the time that are not covered. What was her example of the thing she's covering that's not getting covered but should be covered? Uh, critical race theory. Fox News was wall-to-wall critical race theory stuff for like a week and a half straight. I don't know what you're talking about. That's not getting covered. It, she postures as this like brave outsider who's doing truth-telling. She's not covering war from the perspective of these are bullshit and the military-industrial complex is getting rich and we're being lied to and misled. She's not covering corruption. She's not covering uh, workers' rights and labor issues. You're not some brave truth-teller. You're just, you know, repackaging some right-leaning arguments as, like, enlightened centrism and splash in some anti-wokeness, and you think, like, yes, I'm a hero, yes! Well, anyway, um, she did that as well in the conversation with Ben Shapiro. He talked about how when she left the New York Times, uh, the Tom Cotton op-ed scandal was the thing, was the straw that broke the camel's back. What's so funny about that is the New York Times ran an op-ed from Senator Tom Cotton during the um, summer riots and protests after George Floyd. And Tom Cotton's op-ed was like, I'm summarizing here and giving my take on it, but it was, fuck the Constitution, let's do an authoritarian takeover, deploy the military into U.S. streets. And Trump considered that using the Insurrection Act, which is a slave-era law to quell slave rebellions. Tom Cotton was like, yes, deploy the military in U.S. streets. Okay, that's authoritarian. That's a tyrannical crackdown. If you believe in free speech, you believe in the First Amendment, obviously, yes, you can crack down on rioters and arrest them for rioting and breaking laws, but protesters, and over 80, 90% of the people who were, pro- who were there were protesters. You have to let them express their First Amendment rights. But Tom Cotton was like, no, crack down on it. Barry White said when the New York Times pulled that article, she was like, I can't abide by this anymore. This is authoritarian. I must leave. Wait, so the New York Times pulling the article is authoritarian, but Tom Cotton advocating for an authoritarian takeover isn't authoritarian? See, this is, it, you know, it only cuts in one direction. They, they have massive blind spots that they don't see in their, like, anti-cancel culture, anti-wokeness, pro-free speech uh, stances. And it, that drives me crazy. Anyway. There's one part of the podcast that I had to talk about with you guys. Here is Barry Weiss and Ben Shapiro. Remember, their whole thing is, we're anti-wokeness, we're anti-cancel culture, we are politically incorrect, we hate identity politics, we hate uh, that this new version of sectarianism and tribalism. Look at this portion of the podcast where they do the exact thing that they claim to hate. You're obviously very openly Jewish, very openly Zionistic, I'm extremely openly Jewish and openly Zionistic, the Yamaka says it all. Uh, but th- what that means is that I think for, for you, uh, the, the aspect of the intersectional movement that was pretty obvious from the start was the crossover with anti-Semitism, yeah. which, is, which is really kind of surprising and shocking if you're on the left. And it's, it's not quite as shocking if you have studied anything about anti-Semitism in the past where basically labeling of all sorts of people has always been horribly for the Jews. Right. I mean, first of all, in that sentence, you can pretty much supplant everything for the first half of that sentence blank, and then it ends horribly for the Jews. But... It, but that's really the, you just covered all of Jewish history. You don't need a handful of justice books, that's it. We survived with the, um, or No, they tried to kill us, we survived. Yeah, exactly. Um, but the, the kind of, what you wrote about in your book, uh, How to Fight Anti-Semitism, which was, you know, looked upon very critically by members of the left, is the fact that there is 
an unwillingness to look anti-Semitism in the face, yeah. depending on your political viewpoint. We had a this before the book came out, because we talked about you coming on the show. And one of the things that I said is, I think that you're going to find that a lot of people in the West are going to be angry at you for, for writing this book, specifically because you point out that there is anti-Semitism on the left. And if you want to fight anti-Semitism, you actually have to look at anti-Semitism on the right and point it out, and anti-Semitism on the left and point it out, and you have to fight it wherever you see it, or you can't really claim to be anti-Semitism. Um, but that is, uh, that's an unpopular point of view, because there is a pretty strong correlation between belief in intersectionality and willingness to, to countenance anti-Semitism. Yeah, I mean, just quick sort of like on one foot explanation is that Jews are getting squeezed from both extremes right now, right? So you know better than probably anyone, you know, what anti-Semitism from the far right looks like. It looks like saying, you know, Jews pretend to be white people. They look like us. They seem like us. But in fact, you know, they're, they're loyal to black people and brown people and Muslims and immigrants. And in a sense, they're like the greatest trick the devil has ever played. And that was certainly the ideology of the man that walked into the synagogue where I became a mitzvah and killed as many Jews as he could. And he specifically selected that synagogue because the previous Shabbat, the previous weekend, he participated in refugee Shabbat, the idea of, you know, welcoming the stranger and biblical injunction to do so because we ourselves are strangers in the land of Egypt. That's the right. And everyone knows that because it's explicit. We don't need to have a Talmudic debate about, like, going on Gab.com and saying, kill all the Jews. Like, we all see what that is. And because, of course, of, you know, because, of course, of Hitler and the long shadow of, of of the Holocaust, we all recognize it, and there's incredible clarity around it. And the trick with anti-Semitism from the left is that it comes cloaked in the language of sort of justice and progress and social justice. And people are either willing to be tricked by that or genuinely are. Um, but it, it seems as though the Democratic Party has really broken from a lot of this well. And we saw, for example, that the, the Democratic Party, they had to pass a separate bill in order to have, for example, Iron Dome funding, but she just believed in Ohio Omar have only recently has anybody in the Democratic Party actually had the stones to stand up and say, and Ted Deutsch from actually the district did, but it took a year and a half for anybody in the Democratic Party to point out the obvious, which is that Ohio Omar and Rashid are not fond of the Jews. Um, it, it seems yeah, so, that, that wasn't obvious. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> These young Muslim women, they must hate the Jews. That's, that was obvious. <laughs> Who's being bigoted here? Who's being bigoted? No, Kyle, that's based on the things they said. What, like when Ilhan Omar said it's all about the Benjamins, talking about APAC buying politicians, which they do? So she's talking about corruption, but for some reason you can't say it when it comes to APAC. Can you say it when it comes to Saudi Arabia? Of course. Can you say it when it comes to the UAE? Of course. But you can't say it about APAC. This is what we're talking Everything is twisted, and they're doing the thing that they claim to hate. Oh, God, I hate it when the woke types go right to race, and they play the victim. You're playing the victim right now. You're playing identity politics right now. You're doing the oppression Olympics right now. They, early on in the conversation, they were like, well, history, you know, history has gone horribly for us in the Jewish community. And we're getting it from both sides. We're getting squeezed from the right and from the left now. What are you talking about? And then, the, you know, they play this game of Israel's like so put upon and so oppressed and they have it so rough. Israel is phenomenally powerful. They are backed by the world's most powerful country and most powerful military. We give them money. We give them weapons. We gave them Iron Dome. By the way, one of the things they use as evidence that Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib are anti-Semitic is that they opposed the extra funding for Iron Dome. Iron Dome is already funded. Iron Dome is already funded. They wanted to do extra funding for Iron Dome. And when Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib say, I don't think U.S. taxpayer money should be going towards a weapons system, uh, a weapons defense system over there, because we don't even have health care here or education here or high wages here. They were like, oh, that's anti-Semitic. Look, I said this before, I'll say it again. I'll make a deal with uh, people in, in Congress. You want me to vote for Iron Dome for Israel? Okay, fine, I will, if the Palestinians get it too. 
Well, Israel has a right to defend itself. Do Palestinians have a right to defend themselves? I'll wait. So they're doing the exact thing they claim to hate. And I love how she says, well, the trick with anti-Semitism on the left is that it comes cloaked in the language of progress and social justice. Maybe it's not cloaked in anything. Maybe there is no anti-Semitism, and it's actually social justice and progress. Real reason. They say the left is anti-Semitic. Why? Because people who are on the actual left support BDS. What is BDS? Boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement to try to give Palestinians human rights. It's the same model that worked in apartheid South Africa. That's the same model that worked there to get black people their rights. Do you understand that? So they know this is a potent weapon. This can work. It's also nonviolent. So it can work. So what's the last trick in the book? When, you, when your opposition figures out how to fight in a peaceful way effectively to get their rights, just call them bigots. Call them bigots. Call them xenophobes. Call them anti-Semites. Why? Because they want Palestinians to have human rights, and they think the best way to do that is to maybe boycott some Israeli businesses in the illegal occupied, illegally occupied territories. That's the most moral way you can fight back. So my question for Barry Weiss and Ben Shapiro is, if Palestinians can't physically fight back, because you call that terrorism, and they can't peacefully march and, and do it that way because nobody pays attention when they do that, um, then what way can they fight back? Because when they do BDS, which would work, you call them anti-Semites. So they're bigots if they, if they fight peacefully in an economic sense, Nobody pays attention if they march quietly, and it's terrorism if they do it violently. What do you want Palestinians to do? We know what the answer is. They want them to do nothing, sit there and take it. Whatever Israel decides your fate is, that's what your fate is. And so if they want to do a slow-moving ethnic cleansing, so be it. And, ooh, Kyle just called it an ethnic cleansing. He must be anti-Semitic. No, I don't play your stupid game. I believe in equality of all people, and I believe in rights for all people. And that includes Palestinians. Israel is way more powerful. The idea that they're put upon or they're oppressed is nonsense. That's why they're against the left, and they say, well, the left is anti-Semitic. They're so anti-Semitic that they believe in progress and social justice. Maybe that's not anti-Semitism. Maybe they actually want Palestinian human rights. God, it's unbelievable. I can't get over their, you know, there's another giant contradiction they have, too, because they always talk about academic freedom, We need to care about academic freedom. But then when the critical race theory argument came up, they totally flipped on that. They were like, get that out of schools. Get it out of schools. You guys were just saying how you believe in academic freedom and you want alternative perspectives taught in school. And then when critical race theory comes up, you say, I didn't mean that. Get rid of that. Now, by the way, critical race theory isn't even taught in um, elementary school, middle school, or high school. It's like a college-level course. There's this big freak out over it. But notice how quickly they flip on the principle. Whatever it suits, whatever their personal beliefs are. They do it all the time, and this is the best example of it here. Oh, we hate identity politics, but we'll play it as soon as it's beneficial to us, and that's exactly what's happening here. They're, they're woke scolds. They're doing the oppression Olympics. They're saying, woe is me, victim mindset. Oh, Jews have it so rough. Jews have it so tough. And the right is anti-Semitic, but also the left is because they believe in Palestinian human rights, and that's anti-Semitic. Spare me. Like, at least step up your propaganda. Your propaganda is beyond shitty, and everybody can see it. Okay. All right, let me do one more and then I'll take a break.
we have a bit of a bombshell story that just came out based on a new book. So let me show this to you, first reported by the Daily Mail. Exclusive, Jeffrey Epstein believed he could make a deal to dodge sex trafficking charges by giving up dirt on Trump or Clinton after his 2019 arrest and discussed ways to restore his image with Steve Bannon and Israeli PM Ehud Barak. What? So this is from the book, Too Famous, The Rich, The Powerful, The Wishful, The Damned, The Notorious by Michael Wolff. Dude, that book title is way too long. It will lift the lid on billionaire Jeffrey Epstein's final months. The book, out October 19th, that's tomorrow, claims Epstein thought there was a deal to be made over his sex trafficking charges, including turning against Trump and Clinton. According to Wolf, who recounts his visits to Epstein's homes in New York City and Paris, the pedophile believed there were two scenarios behind his 2019 arrest. He thought, though, he thought, though the Trump White House, through the DOJ, was trying to get Epstein to flip and reveal the sex sex secrets of Bill Clinton, Wolf writes. The other scenario was that New York prosecutors who were investigating Trump's business affairs ordered his arrest to pressure him to flip on Trump. Wolf recalls a visit to Epstein's New York City home in 2019 where he heard discussions with Steve Bannon and former Israeli PM Ehud Barak on how to restore his image. One suggestion was for Epstein to appear on 60 Minutes, CBS This Morning, or to be interviewed by Rachel Maddow, but Bannon said it would, it would be tough. Yeah, that wouldn't have worked, dog. That wouldn't have worked. That would have went as well as the Prince Andrew interview went, where he bombed gloriously. Um, There's another moment that they talk about where uh, Epstein was on the phone with Steve Bannon, and Steve Bannon said to him, you were the only person I was afraid of uh, when I was in the Trump campaign, when I was, I think he was running the Trump campaign at one point. When I was in the Trump campaign, you were the only person I was afraid of who would come out and, like, can tank Trump's chances of winning the presidency. And Epstein's response was, as well you should have been. Look, this is one of those things where everybody kind of knew it, but we're just waiting for verification. Now, to to be fair, the dude who wrote this book, there are charges uh, of him not being totally forthright and honest and maybe twisting stuff and misleading people. Um, He's not viewed as the most honest of sources, okay? Having said that, this is the thing that people already thought was the case, and I don't know how much you want to weigh on this, but uh, this appears to be some level of verification for what everybody was thinking, which is Jeffrey Epstein was the owner and operator and manager of Elite Sex Crimes Incorporated, and he knew where all the bodies were buried, He knew what everybody was into. He had a list of politicians and world leaders and corporate giants and celebrities. He had a list that was so long of all of their uh, darkest, dirtiest secrets. And so when he was arrested, yeah, the first thing I thought, the first thing many of you thought was, oh, this could get good because to save his own ass, he could flip on anybody and everybody and he could spill the secrets. And so, in other words, he can use that to get off for his own crimes. You know, you go after the bigger fish. You catch smaller fish, then you go after the bigger fish. And he knows about all the biggest fish. And um, so when he died, committed suicide, everybody left, right, center agreed, oh, he, Jeff, Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself. 
And um, to this day, obviously, I still think he didn't kill himself. He was probably killed because he was going to spill the beans on anybody and everybody. But that's fascinating that in his own mind, he potentially thought, Trump wants me to flip on Clinton, which is why I was arrested, and give the dirt about Clinton. And he probably would have given the dirt about Clinton. Or if the New York uh, prosecutors are behind it and they're going after Trump's businesses, they want me to spill the dirt on Trump. The, you know, so that, and then I'll get off and, and they have their ammunition against Trump. And he probably would have done that too. So lo and behold, now he's dead. Because he was probably going to start chirping on either Trump or Clinton. By the way, this is a great test of how tribal and partisan people are. Um, if they downplay either Trump or Clinton's, uh, you know, connection with Epstein. Because they were both connected to Epstein, and I'm sure he had dirt on both of them. And if somebody's dismissive of, ah, Trump wasn't with him that much, and it was fine, then that person's a Republican hack. And if somebody's like, ah, it's Bill Clinton, Trump was the one who was with him, and I'm, whatever, Bill, I'm sure it was the honest situation, that person's a Democratic hack. It's a real good litmus test as to how far gone somebody is when it comes to partisanship. Um, God damn it, I hope eventually we get the details. I really do. I really do. And also, a final point is, why was former Israeli PM Ehud Barak there? Answer, because my speculation, I think, is correct. I think he was Israeli intelligence. Nobody really knows all the specifics and the details as to how he was as wealthy and as powerful and in the elite circles as he was. Um, And I think the missing piece is he was Israeli intelligence. And so you get dirt on all these big-time Americans, and then they have something they can hang over your head, and you make sure that every American with power has unyielding loyalty to the Israeli government. I do think that that is – that was one of the the, um, so-called conspiracies that was floated a long time ago. I don't see why the former Israeli PM would be there unless that is true. Maybe you say maybe not Israeli intelligence, maybe CIA, uh, maybe. But there's some part of the story we're missing. He didn't just fleece a billionaire and then come up that way, which is the story. That's the story of, of Jeffrey Epstein, some you know, big-time uh, wealthy businessman that he sort of got his trust and then was able to shake him down and have wealth and power. That's not the whole story. There's something that's missing, and I think that is the missing piece, but... There you have it. I'm sure Trump and Clinton were both shaking in their boots when Epstein was arrested and they thought he might flip. And, ooh, to look at that. Looks like the problem took care of itself and he was killed. Okay. All right, y'all. Break time. When we come back, still got a lot more for you. Um, Manchin flips out at Bernie and The View defends Mayor Pete and um, Politico owner demands loyalty to capitalism. you believe that? For, po- for people who work at Politico. Stay right there. We'll be right back with that and much more.
Son of a bitch. I'm back, y'all. I am back for a lot more secular talk fun. <clears throat> okay. Where were we? I just had some chicken nuggies, and they were delicious. All right. Mansion and Bernie are currently in a heavyweight slugfest. Uh, it looks like, excuse me, Bernie got fed up with Mansion playing cutesy and trying to uh, sort of dodge the media and dodge questions about what his goal is here and not supporting a $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill and then, um, you know, uh, wanting to cut out popular provisions. I mean, the guy's a, a, a dirty energy baron, and he gets to decide. He's the head of the committee that will decide what climate stuff makes it in and doesn't. So Bernie's like, you know what, Mr. Nice Guy time, I tried that for months, it's over. So what he did is he wrote an op-ed in a paper in West Virginia basically making the case and saying, come on, dog, this makes no damn sense. Um, and, of course, as per usual, Bernie was correct in all of his points. Well, Joe Manchin did not take kindly to uh, Bernie breaking out the old whooping stick. And then this happened on Twitter. So you can see there at the bottom, the Gazette Mail, this is the West Virginia paper, exclusive. Senator Sanders says we need every Democrat uh, calls for Manchin to, to support the Build Back Better bill. And then Joe Manchin says, this is, this is snarky here, this isn't the first time an out-of-stater has tried to tell West Virginians what is best for them despite having no relationship to our state. Millions of jobs are open, supply chains are strained, and unavoidable inflation taxes are draining workers' hard-earned wages as the price of gasoline and groceries continues to climb. Senator Sanders' answer is to throw more money on an already overheated economy, while 52 other senators have grave concerns about this approach. To be clear, again, Congress should proceed with caution on any additional spending, and I will not vote for a reckless expansion of government programs. No op-ed from a self-declared independent socialist is going to change that. So um, there's a lot there. Most of the things he says are stupid right-wing talking points. Um, and he never said a word about an overheated economy or, whoa, 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 we're spending too much when it came to the military bill which gets bigger and bigger and bigger every year and is wildly unnecessary. We spend more than the next 10 or 12 biggest countries combined, and most of them are our allies. But nobody ever says anything about the cost of the military. And by the way, this talk was like an overheated economy. That's such a stupid way to talk about the economy. Like, yeah, that's the main problem. Go talk to regular working people, and they'll be like, you know, I would want higher wages, but I think the economy is overheated, so keep my wages low. Fuck off, Joe. You know that's bullshit. But I love one of the responses to Joe Manchin, which showed this. Voters support the Build Back Better plan. A majority of West Virginia voters support the Build Back Better plan. Guys, look at how overwhelming this is. West Virginia likely voters. The plan is plus 43 with them. Democratic voters, plus 86. Independent and third-party voters, plus 33. Even with Republican voters in West Virginia, the reddest of the red states, the plan is plus 22. So in other words, Democrats, independents, and Republicans support the Build Back Better plan. 
And I want to repeat what Joe Manchin said at the beginning of his little snarky response to Bernie here. This isn't the first time an out-of-stater has tried to tell West Virginians what is best for them despite having no relationship to our state. Turns out West Virginians agree with Bernie Sanders and don't agree with you. Dirty energy baron Joe Manchin, who has millions of dollars because of that dirty energy and wants to perpetuate that system because you and your family are personally wealthy off that energy. So he's trying to gut the climate part of the bill. And we just got news the other day, the uh, child tax credit, he wants to means test it. 60,000, if you make 60,000 or more, you shouldn't get the child tax credit, according to Joe Manchin. So in other words, a family where the mom makes 31,000 and the dad makes 31,000, that's too wealthy to get the child tax credit, according to Joe Manchin. Joe Manchin is taking a bold stance in favor of child poverty. Good job, bro. Look, we're at the point now that clearly the nice guy approach, the talking behind the scenes, the quiet negotiations, it didn't work to get Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema on the right page. So what's left? What's left is very simple. Number one, more of what Bernie's doing here. See, Joe Manchin is flipping out over somebody going to West Virginia to make the case. By the way, there were reports previously the same thing happened. When Biden sent Kamala to give a speech in West Virginia, which, by the way, is like the last person I would tend to give, give a speech in West Virginia on the Democratic side, but Manchin flipped out and said, don't you dare do that again. The reason he's reacting like that is because it might work, and he's feeling the pressure. So I would have, I would have Bernie Sanders go give a speech there. I would bring, you know what the best thing to do is? Get union workers, have them wear their fucking hard hats and wear their work outfits and give a speech. I want somebody with a deep West Virginia accent to go up there and explain why this bill is wonderful and we need pre-K and we need college and we need child care and we need uh, the child tax credit and we need the Medicare expansion. I want them to go right on his turf and make the case directly to the people of West Virginia. Now beyond that, it, listen, it all rests with Joe Biden. If he acts like FDR, if he acts like LBJ, he can get his agenda passed. If he doesn't, he won't. It's that simple. So you call Manchin into your office, you call Cinema into your office, and you tell them, I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. Joe, if you don't vote for this $3.5 trillion bill, Merrick Garland is on standby waiting to look into your daughter uh, for the EpiPen price gouging scandal that she's responsible for, where she worked for a pharmaceutical company, and they have emails. They caught her dead to rights saying, how do we come up with a rationalization to price gouge people with the EpiPen? Manchin's wife was involved in that too. Joe, I don't want to do it, but you're, you're putting me in a tough position here. You're really busting my balls here. I, I don't want to lock up your entire family, but I might have to do it because the law is clear. You guys broke the law and justice is blind. What if your whole family went down over this, bro? Now, he might flip out when he hears that, of course. He might throw a tantrum. Good. But you know what else you say? Joe, Joe, listen, we could avoid all this. We could avoid all this. Because if you vote for the Build Back Better plan, the $3.5 trillion, I'll give you another military base in West Virginia. I'll give you extra funding for infrastructure in West Virginia. I'll give your wife a, a position in my administration. I'll give you whatever you want. I'll give you whatever you want. 
So either you do the wrong thing and your whole family goes down and we throw the book at you and you'll probably spend time in prison, or you do the right thing and you're a hero to the people of West Virginia and to the people of this country. Your choice. That's what you do with Joe Manchin. Kirsten Cinema. see, she's a tougher nut to crack for the very simple reason that I'm not sure she wants to still be a senator. The only way you can really use leverage over her is if she wants to get reelected and wants to stay in D.C. Because if she doesn't and she wants to leave and become a lobbyist and get paid from some soulless corporation, there's nothing Biden could offer her that's more than what a giant corporation can offer her. So, I mean, she's taken hundreds of thousands of dollars, $920,000 or something like that, raising money from all the interests lined up against the Build Back Better plan, taken hundreds of thousands from pharmaceutical companies, then turned around and said, I'm against lower drug prices. Take out that provision from the bill. But listen, you've got to find a pressure point. You've got to find some leverage you have over her. You've got to call her into your office and make the same case that you made with Manchin. Be the mafia boss. Say, listen, here's what you get if you do the right thing. If you don't, here's what's going to happen. And that's all we have left. If he doesn't do it, there's no way this, this thing is passing. If he doesn't do it, this might not even pass in a slimmed down version, y'all. So it's on you, Joe Biden. It's on you. But uh, it's time to put the pressure on, and it's time to do the stick approach with the carrot and stick plan. Okay? That's all that's left. Okay, next. There's a story that went viral recently. Um, Mayor Pete has been out family leave as transportation secretary for two months. Apparently, he didn't, like, tell many people he was doing it. He just kind of did it. And um, the, the other part of this that people are talking about is there's a supply chain crisis right now. And apparently the transportation secretary is involved in one way or another in trying to fix that. And so people are saying, well, this is kind of ridiculous. You left in the middle of a supply chain crisis, you didn't tell many people, and you've been gone for two months. So this was a bit of a scandal. Um, The hosts on The View talked about it, but what they did here is they went after Tucker Carlson because Tucker Carlson on Fox News did a segment where he was really critical of Mayor Pete for doing this, um, and he said some things that they think are really fucked up. Let's watch, and then I'll give you my breakdown. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg is finding out firsthand how hard it is to be a working parent in America. He's being criticized for taking time off to care for his newborn twins rather than uh, concentrating on the infrastructure bill and supply train, uh, chain crisis, which I saw him addressing just the other day, didn't you? He was on, yeah. Yeah. He was mm-hmm. on, the, on the thing. And, uh, yeah. of course, uh, the uh, rather insecure Tucker Carlson couldn't resist going full bigot about the whole issue last night. Watch. Pete Buttigieg has been on leave from his job since August after adopting a child paternity leave, they call it, trying to figure out how to breastfeed, no word on that one. But now he's back in office as the transportation secretary, and he's deeply amused, he says, to see that dozens of container ships take it into this country. You know, <coughs> I mean, he's mocking what? His manliness? What is he mocking? There? He's mocking everyone equally. He's mocking women. He's mocking men. He's, yeah. I mean, he's an equal opportunity bigot. Yeah. Mm. So maybe he doesn't know much about breastfeeding because he came out of a robot. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. you know what explain his lack of heart. I, I am really glad that Secretary Pete is taking uh, maternity leave because I think that this says to other men, you can take time off. Men actually have to take time off. 
your, your significant other needs help, you need help, men get stressed. So I think it's great. I don't think Tucker Carlson didn't say anything about Jesse Waters on Fox. He took paternity leave this yeah. year. He said That's he used true. to mock people. He took paternity leave. Todd Piero from Fox and Friends, he took six weeks leave. So right. he's not mocking anybody on his network. No, that's true. The problem, the problem here is women have climbed the ranks in, you know, over the decades long. Yeah. The reason women can't quite catch up is when someone goes to hire you and you might be of childbearing years, they can't ask you, but they can assume you're going to be a more expensive person to hire. If you yeah. have two people, the man's going to be better because he's not going to leave. You're not going to be paying for all that time. So if we had mandatory family leave, that would equalize the playing field. And by the way, get away from the emotions of why that's important. There are a lot of non-traditional families. There are families that adopt. There are gay yeah. couples who also adopt. There are people that use surrogates. That's bonding time. We, we talk about the start of a child's life and how they feel either attached or dependent. There are so many psychological things traced back to those early times. If you get a C-section, you can't lift your own baby for four to six weeks. It was never natural to be at home with a baby by yourself or even with one person. Well, it used to be families of generations that would raise yeah, a child. That's why Hillary, very famous, Hillary Clinton famously said it takes a village. village. But it's uh, an interesting statistic. Parents in Sweden are entitled to 480 days yeah. of paid parental leave. Yeah. Okay, 480 days. Yeah. Over a year. Over a year. So, but Usually, it's uh, the parents. Each parent is entitled to 240 of those days, so they give some of yeah. it to the father and some to well, the mother. I so I have a lot to say about this. So um, I will say about Mayor Pete that at least on this front, he is not a hypocrite. He is on the side of paid family leave for everybody. So it's not like he's getting it, but he wants to keep it from you. Now, if he was some Republican who's not for family leave and he takes it, but he wants to keep it from you, that would be an extra layer of fucked up, in my opinion. Now, do I think this situation is maybe a little more complicated given how important the job nominally is and what's going on in the country? I must admit I do. Now, we absolutely should have paid family leave. Somebody even floated on the panel, mandatory paid family leave. I might even be on board with that. Um... And I, I didn't even know that in Sweden there were 400 days of paid parental leave and, you know, you split it between the mother and the father or whatever. I didn't know that. But that gives you a sense of what it's like in other developed countries. In this country, we don't have paid family leave. We don't have paid vacation time by law. We don't have any of the stuff that other developed countries have. That's one of the charts that I've showed on this show time and time again is paid vacation time by law or even just paid time off by law. Every other developed country has a lot of paid time off by law, and we have zero, none, nothing. We're way behind everybody else on this. So let me say unequivocally up front, this is one of the issues I care deeply about because I think Americans are totally overworked, stressed, anxious, depressed, and one of the reasons is we have a terrible work-life balance where everybody's working, 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 and then you die. Yeah, well, you're going to be miserable if that's the case unless you get real unique fulfillment out of your specific job. And the overwhelming majority of people don't. They're just sort of paying the bills with their job. So everybody should get paid family leave. I think that's a no-brainer, um, and we should be pushing for that relentlessly. But the nuances matter. So I made a joke when I first saw this story. I was like, I'm going to run for president, win, and then on day one take two months of paid family leave. Now you hear that and you go, well, that'd be fucking ridiculous, Kyle, wouldn't it? Yeah. Are there some jobs, namely if you are running the fucking country 
that maybe the, the um, situation changes a little bit and it's more complicated? Yeah, it is. And I don't think we do ourselves any favors by denying that nuance. So in the case of Pete, look, I have no problem with him taking the paid family leave. Um, I just think the timing is terrible. The timing is in the middle of a supply chain crisis when the transportation secretary is involved with that crisis. By the way, I, to be clear, I actually don't really know how much the transportation secretary does. Seems kind of like a bullshit job for the most part. But if they do anything, they probably do something with infrastructure, which we're currently trying to get the infrastructure bills passed. Um, and they do stuff with the supply chain that would sort of be in his wheelhouse. So I guess my main criticism is, the timing should have been better. And perhaps you should have done it not right when we're in the smack dab center of a supply chain crisis. But having said that, yeah, I don't want the conversation to be hijacked by people who are just flat out against paid family leave. And also, I think it is fucked up to paint it specifically when it comes to a gay couple as like, this is the time where it's, you think it's nefarious and you think it's questionable and you think you shouldn't be allowed to do it. Uh, if it was a man and a woman, would people be reacting like that? I don't know. I don't know. But um, they make the point Tucker ignored when Jesse Waters took paid paternity leave. He didn't go after uh, Jesse Waters. He didn't go after some other Fox News host who they cited there who took paid uh, paternity leave. Um, and, yeah, I mean, Tucker also didn't criticize the uh, his own network for the vaccine mandate. He's going after Biden for the soft mandate of 100 employees or more for a business you have to either vaccinate or get tested. He's pretending it's a hard mandate and he's against the mandate, but there's a vaccine mandate at Fox News. And I think he actually lied about it too after that. He was like, no, there's not. Yes, there is. Um, so classic Tucker, like only pointing his criticism in a specific direction to fit partisan political ends. But um, I, I also do think it is fair to say though, that for a Fox host or for an MSNBC host or CNN host or any other kind of host, yeah, that's not as crucial a job as maybe transporta transportation secretary is during the infrastructure bill discussion and debate negotiation and during the supply chain crisis. So Mayor Pete should be able to take paid family leave. Anybody should be able to take paid family leave. The timing is bad. And also, I do think it's fair to say there's a very tiny number of jobs that are so important that maybe you should make the, your own decision that I can't actually do that. Like if, I don't think, like the president, for example, should the president get paid family leave? I, don't, I mean, I think if you're president of the United States, um, you really don't have a day off. I mean, maybe you take one day a week or two days a week, but the idea that you could take like a whole week off at a time or months, I don't think I like that idea. And I wouldn't like it if it was a Republican or a Democrat, because I think that that job is so important and so unique that, and you are the leader that when you're at the top, you don't get, you don't get a day off. Like you just, you just can't, it's the nature of what you signed up for there. You know what I mean? Whereas I would argue with 95% to 99% of jobs, you absolutely, you should get paid family leave and it should be guaranteed. And maybe it should even be mandatory. Um, and Pete responded to this too, by the way, and said, it's not actually time off. Like it's work, like you're working. It's, it's, joyous work and you know you're building a bond with family members and stuff like that so that's important but it is work and that is definitely true i mean it's probably it's a super difficult job if you're raising kids like 
a lot, there's a lot that goes into that. And talk about it, that's another area where it feels like you don't get any time off at all. You know what I mean? So um, that fact about Sweden was mind-blowing, and it gives you a sense of just how off-base we are in this country when it comes to that, when it comes to paid family leave. I also agree with the point that in the past it was like generations of a family that would raise a child. And now it seems like it's not like that as much. And so people are sort of struggling to dot the I's and cross the T's and and get by. Um, But yeah, that's my overall takeaway. We need a law for paid family leave in this country for sure. We got to get that through. We got to get that done. It's colossally important. Having said that with the case of Pete or anybody who's in that like 1% of jobs that are just so important, just make the timing better, bro. Just make the timing better. Uh, it seems like a crucial time for you to not be out of your position when we got the infrastructure negotiation and the supply chain issues. But you know what? Ultimately, maybe I'm wrong because maybe the transportation secretary really does absolutely dicky McGee's act, in which case it's like, whatever, take all the time off in the world, you know? And maybe I'll contradict myself a little bit here too, maybe, because if Trump became president and said, I'm just going to, or George W. Bush, well, George W. Bush, no, because then Dick Cheney would take over. But if Trump was like, me and Pence are just going to go on leave for four years, I'd be like, cool, because then somebody less stupid might take over. Anyway, um, that's my breakdown of it. The View is not a fan of Tucker, and they are defending Mayor Pete pretty aggressively here. Okay. Next. So this is really something. Um, Politico was taken over by a new owner, and there's a scandal afoot. So Heret says, German publisher Axel Springer, sounds like a fake name, but it's real. Uh, Politico's new owner said support for Israel, for a united Europe, and a free market economy are like a constitution. They apply to every employee of our company. Those who disagree, quote, should not work for Axel Springer. So effectively... Homeboy's making people sign a loyalty pledge to work at Politico. And by the way, Business Insider, he just took, bought $500 million worth of it, so it might apply there as well. And there's other outlets that he owns. Um, now, this is quite admission, for one thing. Another fact I should point out is the outlets that he owns in Germany, people literally have to sign an oath, you know, like a loyalty oath to these principles, to these ideas. This is like the antithesis of what the media is supposed to be. You know, you're supposed to do, you're supposed to be as objective as possible and give people facts and information and educate people. Now, there's always going to be some degree of ideology, of course, because you have to have a framework through which you view the world. Um, and you should be open and honest with that framework. But this is, this is an admission that the framework is imperial. That's what this is. You have to support Israel, you have to support capitalism, free market economy, and you have to support a united Europe. So wait, like, you can't work at uh, Politico and be in favor of Brexit. Well, Brexit won when it went up for a democratic vote in the UK. So, I mean, that's a big opinion to write off. It's a big opinion to write off critics of Israel, because there's a lot of legitimate criticisms of Israel you know, it's effectively an ethnostate and a theocracy. You can't criticize Israel. You have to, what, not report on 
the abuse of Palestinians? That's absurd. I mean, that's the biggest story there. So what are you talking about? The supportive capitalism thing. I mean, listen, this shows you even social Democrats are too extreme and too radical in corporate media. Now, this is just one example, but it's very explicit, so it makes the point. And more broadly speaking, I think this stuff is kind of implied with a lot of, a lot of other mainstream media outlets. Um, when it comes to, like, identity stuff and cultural stuff and social issues, you can generally go as far left as you want at a lot of the mainstream publications. But when it comes to economic issues and when it comes to foreign policy issues, you cannot step outside of that Overton window. And again, even standard social Democrats are too extreme for Politico. So that means a Bernie Sanders type is too extreme for Politico. Bernie Sanders, that's like the left flank of what's allowed. You can't be a supporter of the Norwegian system or the Swedish system and work for Politico. You can't say, hey, I, I support a, a, a hybrid system that has a better mix of capitalism and socialism. No, that's too much. That's too far. Um, when people say, you know, I support free speech and I support a free press and I support people just asking questions and having reasoned debates and discussions, they don't really mean it. They mean it within the confines of what they view as the acceptable realm of thought, an acceptable spectrum of thought. And this is Noam Chomsky's thesis with manufacturing consent. This is exactly what it is. If you set up the parameters of the debate and the discussion and let people have at it from within those parameters, it appears like it's a free and open society and we have an open media with rigorous dialogue. But really... The trick was in the setting up of the parameters in the first place. Because anytime somebody steps outside of those parameters, if you advocate for socialism, if you advocate for any other ideology except capitalism, you've gone too far and you're crazy. Think about how extreme that really is. We've discussed this before on this show. But when you, when you look at capitalism objectively, what is it? Well, it's the opposite of democracy. So we say we believe in democracy when it comes to the government but when it comes to where you spend most of your time at your job, at the workplace, where you're an employee, that's a tyrannical structure. That's a, that's a rigid hierarchy. That's a dictatorship. And I'm not saying that with a value judgment on it. I'm saying it in a descriptive sense. You can think about it, whatever you want to think about it. But that's what that is. When you have an owner, and then you have a manager underneath the owner, and then you have the employees underneath them, and whatever the owner says goes, and whatever the manager tells you to do goes, that ain't a democracy. That's not freedom. That's not liberty. That's you work in a mini dictatorship. Now, you might have a benevolent dictator who's over you, but it's still a dictator. And they say you have to abide by that ideological framework to work in Politico. Well, thank you, because now I can write off almost everything Politico says. Thank you for admitting that up front. I will give them credit for this. At least this is the first time they're actually being forthright with their own biases. Because I'm a big fan of telling people what you think up front. So you know what my framework is. You know what my filter is. I've told you guys a thousand times on this show, there's a number of labels that I'm comfortable applying to myself. Um, it's a complex conversation to really get into all the specifics, but generally speaking, if you were to call me a believer in social democracy, I accept it. If you were to call me a libertarian socialist, I accept it. I have some post-capitalist aspects to my philosophical and ideological worldview, uh, but you know, I also am an empiricist and like when I see things that are proven to work, and I think the Scandinavian model works phenomenally well. The Nordic model works phenomenally well. Um, I'm also happy with the label populist left. If you want to call me a populist leftist, 
I think that's pretty accurate. I'm also comfortable with the label international moderator, international centrist, because that's, I think I'm sort of, you know, right smack dab in the middle of mainstream opinion when it comes to the industrial world for the most part. So there's a number of labels that apply to me. I will tell you that up front because I'm honest, because I'm honest. Now, YouTube sees that and they think, oh, he's biased, you know. Uh, but no, everybody has some degree of a framework and a filter that they view the world through. Just some people are honest enough to tell you about it up front and others are not. Well, Politico, even though I think their framework is wrong and terribly wrong at that, at least they're telling us up front, like, hey, here's, here's how we view the world. This is the prism that we view the world through. Well, thank you. Seriously, thank you for that. So now you know. Now, Politico was never great in the first place, but now if you see an even worse turn, you know why. By the way, David Sirota, credit to him, and Andrew Perez from the Daily Poster, they were tweeting, Politico has been running these, these, um, these news things. I forget, what, not newsletters, but they're, it's almost like a, like a Cliff Notes list of the big stories, and it's sponsored by ExxonMobil. And there are other ones that are like, it's on foreign policy, and it's sponsored by some military-industrial uh, co- complex defense contractor. So they're literally sponsoring news by the people who stand to benefit from a particular perspective on that news. Well, there you have it. Yeah, uh, capitalist framework indeed, and you shouldn't trust a word of what comes out of there because they are biased in a way that is in favor of the status quo. That's what that is. Whereas my biases, I'm up front with them, uh, I'm more biased in favor of something that is against the status quo. Now, you can determine. If you think things are working all peachy, well, Politico is your place. If you don't, you have a home here. So there you go. That is, it's really something, isn't it? It's really something. But again, at least they're wearing those biases up front, and that allows you to more adequately determine whether or not you trust them in the first place. Okay, next. So a Texas school was considering teaching both sides of the Holocaust, giving alternative perspectives on the Holocaust. Uh, Here's a little news clip about that, and you'll hear what was said. Wes Frierson, a parent of two daughters in Southlake, is uncertain about his kids' education. With some of the local politics right now, I'm not sure that teachers feel supported. The district already in the spotlight after parents clashed over its diversity plan now facing new pushback over which books are allowed in their libraries, with some teachers placing caution tape over bookshelves, calling the move censorship. It all started when a fourth-grade teacher was reprimanded after a parent complained about her having a book about anti-racism. I couldn't believe it. She's the kind of teacher that we would hope the district would be trying to attract. The district sent educators new guidance to vet all books, instructing them to not allow singular perspectives that could be considered offensive. This coming after Texas passed a law banning the teaching of concepts that could make individuals feel guilt or anguish due to their race. NBC News obtained exclusive, secretly recorded audio of a school training. We are in the middle of a political mess. The director of curriculum, Gina Petty, offers an example for teachers. Balance books about the Holocaust with an opposing view. Make sure that if, if, if you have a book on the Holocaust, that you have one that has opposing Gina Petty did not respond to messages requesting comment. I met with two concerned teachers in Southlake. We obscured their identities because they feared speaking out could cost them their jobs. I was in such shock. 
when I heard these words, we felt this was necessary because we felt like no one was going to listen until a teacher spoke up. And it's not just in Southlake. Across the country, educators are facing new policies restricting how they can educate students about race, from Tennessee to Pennsylvania. Southlake School District told NBC News they were helping teachers comply with Texas law, and the district has not and will not mandate books be removed. The district says that they have not told teachers to ban books to completely shut down libraries. What are you saying? That's a lie. It is a flat out lie. So a school superintendent, they literally have a phone call with the school superintendent saying, listen, I'm, I'm, we got to teach the opposing sides of the Holocaust. I mean, I'm getting calls about this. Um, I mean, needless to say, this is the obvious part of the commentary. No. <laughs> no. It, it's, like, it's like being silly enough to argue you have to teach both theories of uh, reproduction and pregnancy and birth. Uh, you also need to give the stork perspective. Well, no, that's not true. Now, I mean, again, we all laugh at that idea, but the fact of the matter is it wasn't that long ago that people were saying you should teach creationism alongside evolution. Like, give both perspectives. Teach creationism alongside evolution. And then they evolved that a little bit, pun intended, to say, no, 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 okay, we get uh, creationism, no evidence for it, uh, it's totally religious and verifiably untrue, the world isn't 6,000 years old, it's uh, what's the world again? Oh, fuck, I'm forgetting. How old is the... I'm getting sidetracked here. How old is the world? 4.54 billion years old, correct. And then it's like 13 point something for the universe. Anyway, I digress. Now I totally lost my train of thought. What was I saying? Oh, um, so it's not... Don't teach creationism. That's clearly incorrect. But teach intelligent design. So teach the evolution side of the argument and then teach the idea that God was guiding it every step of the way and there was an intelligent designer behind it. So they tried to find ways to repackage it. So give both sides, give both sides, give both sides. Now, if an issue is complex and really nuanced and there's a lot of gray area and there are up-in-the-air aspects or questions about what's true and what's false, then you should teach both sides and you should be intelligent in the conversation and allow for disagreement and things of that nature. But obviously, the stork theory shouldn't be taught. Uh, intelligent design shouldn't be taught. Creationism shouldn't be taught. Because we know it's not true. Um, by the same token, teaching that the Holocaust happened and that, hey, here's actually the evidence the people who say it didn't happen or it wasn't as bad as they say, we know they're not right either. So no, don't teach both sides of something where we have very clear answers. You understand what I'm saying? But it's interesting because look at how they flip on the principle. Because when it came to critical race theory, CRT, the argument from right-wingers was, what are you, crazy? This stuff is wrong. It's incorrect. It's dangerous. And so don't teach it. Get it out of our schools. But then when it comes to the Holocaust, we've we got to teach both sides. we got to teach both sides because we have to believe in academic freedom and open inquiry. Wait, which is it, which is it, which is it? Only teach the things that we feel are correct and right, and just teach that line. So no CRT, because we think it's sectarian and racist. No, open inquiry, teach both sides when it comes to the Holocaust. So they flip on the principle like that. But the reality is, listen, here's the, here's the reality of how it should work. Anything where there is gray area and there is an open question 
you should teach that with the nuance and complexity it deserves. You should teach both sides or all sides of things that uh, merit the all sides conversation and treatment. Um, but there are also plenty of areas where, no, we actually have real answers. You don't need to teach that maybe 2 plus 2 equals 4 or maybe 2 plus 2 equals 22. So you can teach that the Holocaust was real, teach the details of that. Um, and critical race theory, by the way, it's sort of a red herring conversation because it's not even taught in elementary school, middle school, or high school. It's like a college-level course. So, you know, the conversation's moot anyway, in a sense. Um, but understand that everybody, to one extent or another, has an ideology and a framework where they wanna, that, that they want to teach people through. Everybody does. So you often see, like, Trump was pushing for this in schools, the, like, patriotic education thing he was doing, where, you know, they wanted to make the argument that America's good, America's just, America is, a, you know, a force for positivity in the world, and we're going to tell you a story about the U.S. that coincides with that. So, like, downplay the negative parts, play up the parts that they think are positive, portray, you know, certain presidents as heroes and other ones maybe you omit or don't say good things about or just say bad things about. They, that is a, a deeply biased perspective. But they would claim, no, this is just us retelling the truth. Now, on the flip side, yes, you do have on the left, um, like the 1619 Project, which there are some inaccuracies in the 1619 Project. They wanted to teach that idea and maybe teach that as the main story of America. But the reality of the situation is any quality education is going to tell you the things that are concrete and true and factual that we know are concrete and true and factual, they'll tell you those things. Um, but on all, the area, uh, on all the issues where there's gray area, they dive into that gray area and give it to you. So in other words, you know, if, if I was emperor of the education system, the way I'd go about it is to teach the good sides and the bad sides of America. You know, give the hard answers where we have the hard answers, but where we don't, be honest and upfront about it. Or where there's colossal nuance, be clear about it. So, you know, the United States on the one hand was founded on slavery and Native American genocide and we did a bunch of terrible things, Japanese internment, nuking innocent civilians, the Iraq war, illegal and offensive war. Um, but this is also the country that gave us absolute heroes like Martin Luther King Jr. This is also the country that did the New Deal and, you know, dug us out of the Great Depression. Um, you, can, you can and should give both the positives and the negatives. As the great Dr. Cornell West says, um, this country, both Donald Trump is as American as apple pie and Martin Luther King Jr. is as American as apple pie. That's the, that's the worldview I subscribe to. You know, I'll tell you all the negatives and all the positives, and then you can do with that information whatever you will in, framing, in creating your own worldview and outlook. And that's the way it should be. So education is about teaching you stuff, but also teaching you how to think about stuff and how to form your own thoughts. But again, some things we have hard answers to. And on the hard answer questions, we should give the hard answers. But all the areas where we don't, people like to avoid the nuance and then give you just a biased take. No, you're supposed to dive into the nuance. You know, talk about the great things. Uh, we have the wonderful civil rights movement in this country, the wonderful New Deal in this country. But we also now are an imperialist nation and have, have overthrown democratically elected governments and 
founded on slavery and Native American genocide. So anyway, uh, that's my takeaway from this story. The Holocaust is not one of those areas where, you know, it's, let me give you both sides of it. No, no. Generally, there are cranks on one side who have a pretty terrible agenda who want to either downplay the Holocaust or pretend it didn't happen at all. Um, And really, you should teach all the details and the specifics of the Holocaust in all of their horrible truisms, you know. People need to know so that you think never again and you actually mean it. Um, and when it comes to critical race theory, you know, that's, that's one perspective that can and should be taught, the aspects of it that are accurate. And then uh, there are other ideas out there, other approaches to race, the colorblindness idea advocated by Martin Luther King Jr., you teach that as well. So anyway, that's my breakdown of it. I find it funny how they flip on the principle very quickly. You know what I mean? The, they argue don't teach things that are wrong, and we think critical race theory is wrong, but then they argue when it comes to the Holocaust, teach teach both sides. Swing and a miss. All right, next. CNN couldn't help themselves. Um, They did this insane North Korea pro-war propaganda that I want to show you. Now, as you're watching this, Soak it all in, but think, like, why would they run this? What's the point of running this? What, uh, you know, what does this serve? What does this segment serve? Who would like this to be, be put out there? Why do they want it to be put out there? Take a look. New saber rattling tonight by North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un. He's now vowing to build what he calls an invincible military. Ian and Brian Scott has details for us. Uh, Brian Kim spoke with a disturbing backdrop of weapons of war. Well, uh, North Korea analysts are telling us they have never seen anything like this before uh, from the regime. Kim Jong-un is displaying a new arsenal of weapons, some of which are harder to defend against from North Korea's adversaries. A display of North Korea's latest and most ambitious weapons, a backdrop for Kim Jong-un to mark the 76th anniversary of the Workers' Party and to rail on the United States. The dictator declaring he needs these weapons to defend his country against the, quote, hostile U.S., which he says is causing instability on the Korean peninsula. But it's the weapons and the way they were presented which have analysts concerned tonight. We haven't seen anything like this before. And indeed, when he put all his missiles together, it looked like the Smithsonian. He came up with this showroom, um, almost like a car salesman showing uh, what's on the lot. What's on the lot is a lot, a lot of of lethal power, including what North Korea claims is a hypersonic missile with a detachable glider warhead, first tested last month, a weapon that experts say is very difficult to shoot down, a new cruise missile which flies low to the ground, first tested last month. Also on display, what analysts believe is the Hwasong-16, one of the world's largest intercontinental ballistic missiles, possibly capable of carrying multiple warheads shown at recent parades, but not believed to have been tested yet. Kim also recently tested missiles launched from trains, which can pop out of a tunnel hideaway at a moment's notice. Kim Jong-un is telling the world, and specifically the United States, that it has a fearsome arsenal of missiles. This is just another example of intimidation, which they've taken to a whole new level. They're getting better and better at this. 
Another important message analysts believe Kim is sending with the recent tests and this show of force? No retreat from nuclear weapons. So the, the message is we're dangerous, but we're not giving up our nuclear weapons. And deal with it. Showcased at this latest event were more than missiles. Soldiers performed high-flying martial arts kicks, smashing blocks. A soldier crashed through a block with his head. And a bare-chested soldier fought off all comers, all to the delight of Kim and his sister, Kim Yo-jong. At several recent events, Kim has appeared remarkably slimmer than he did months ago. And this time, he was filmed wearing polished sandals with his suit. He lost weight. We don't know why. He um, appears to have gout. He has a limp. He's not a healthy person. And um, if you're Kim Jong-un's doctor, um, before you tell him to hit the gym or stop eating his favorite desserts, you'll probably think this is a guy who had his own uncle assassinated and executed dozens of his own generals and political uh, followers. So I suspect that he's not getting a very strict regimen from his doctors. North Korea experts pay close attention to Kim's physical appearance for good reason. As one expert put it, as scary as those new missiles on display are, that's nothing compared to how frightening it would be if Kim died suddenly and chaos ensued inside that nuclear-armed country. Amazing stuff going on, Brian. Thank you very much for that report, Brian. So what's the point of that? What's the point of that segment? Why are they doing it? Well, the answer is simple. The sources CNN has within the intelligence community gave them that story and were like, here, got a scoop for you. Scoop is big, bad, scary Kim Jong-un is testing new weapons. And, oh, my God, this is, the implication is this is such a threat. And uh, that's garbage. That's garbage. Imagine being fooled and led around by U.S. intelligence when they've lied about virtually everything for decades. I mean, we know they lied us into multiple wars, and now you're just going to take them at their word and, and cover this thing. I mean, when they were showing this shirtless soldier who was beating people up and acting like, oh, look at this. This is scary. Look how they learned how to fight, and Kim Jong-un loves it, and uh, this is a show of force and strength. The United States spends a colossal amount on the military. We spend more than the next, like, 10 or 12 biggest countries combined, and most of those countries are our allies. The idea that North Korea is even the tiniest threat to us is laughable. Their military budget is like 37 cents in a Pop-Tart. It is, you know, they're a super poor country. I'm not defending North Korea or defending Kim Jong-un. He's a dictator, and he's terrible. But understand the purpose of a segment like this. It's to saber-rattle. It's to raise tensions. It's planted by U.S. intelligence and the military-industrial complex. It also helps justify and rationalize why we need to keep spending so much on the military. Nobody ever questioned how much it costs to keep giving a blank check to the military in this country when we can't even spend half of what we spent on the military for the Build Back Better plan to give people childcare and college and, uh, you know, paid time off. I mean, it's obnoxious. And I feel like the longer you follow politics, the more segments like this start to get under your skin because you realize what's going on here. Of course, North Korea is just, they're terrified that they will be overthrown and that the West will invade them. So what they do is just purely a defensive show of force to try to be like, don't mess with us, we're strong, we promise we're strong, and we can attack you if you attack us. So, and by the way, he learned the lesson of what happened with Gaddafi. Gaddafi gave up his weapons and the U.S. toppled them anyway. So now when we sit with, Kim Jong-un and say, you should give up your weapons. Why would he give them up? 
Because we toppled Gaddafi when Gaddafi gave him up. He knows if I give him up, they're going to topple me tomorrow. Literally, John Bolton in the previous administration said, we're looking at the Libyan model for North Korea. So in other words, get him to give up his weapons and then topple him. So obviously everything he's doing here is just a, you know, it's like a tiny, scrawny kid in high school walking around with his chest puffed out and a mean face like, don't fuck with me, please, because I know you'll beat my ass. That's what this is. But it's not put in that perspective. They don't give you that context. They pretend like this guy is really some sort of a threat to us. I think we have enough wars going on, guys. I do. Everything and everybody's portrayed as a threat, and, you know, we need to escalate, and we need more tensions, and we need more weapons, and look at Russia, and look at China, and look at North Korea, and look at Iran, and look at Venezuela, and oh my God, be afraid, give more money to the military-industrial complex. It's such trash. All the problems that we have in this country that we need to fix, and they're running propaganda for the intelligence agencies and the military-industrial complex about big, bad, scary North Korea, even though, if anything, it's just comical, the stuff I just watched. They're so bad at their jobs. All right. Let's talk about the Pope. Here we go. So Pope Francis uh, really laid the smackdown on world leaders over the COVID vaccine. This is interesting. Axio says, Pope Francis calls on companies to release COVID vaccine patents. Um, he's right. He's right. Now, I want to read you more of what he said. But before I do, isn't it? I mean, think about this, guys. We have a guy who's the head of a religion, effectively just a large cult, by the way, with mass pedophilia that went on inside that cult, uh, as we learned from even new reports, in in this instance with France in particular. Um, He's an old dude in a robe wearing a funny hat, and homeboy has better opinions than the entirety of the U.S. political structure. Virtually all the politicians save a few progressives who are on the right side of this. And the reason why the old out-of-touch man in a robe and a funky hat has better politics on this stuff is because he's not bought by Big Pharma, so he can state the obvious. Hey, maybe we should lift the patent protection so that we can get vaccines around the world and, I don't know, not only save countless lives up front, but also prevent a new variant that might eventually be vaccine-resistant. Seems like pretty important, like... What everybody needs to understand is it's in everybody's interest to vaccinate the developing world. By the way, it's only like 2% of Africa that's vaccinated. And this idea that Bill Gates had of like a charity approach, it's woefully inadequate, and he knows it's inadequate. He's a monopolist, and he wanted them to keep their patents so they get rich. Okay, well, I want to read you more of what the Pope said, because he didn't just go in on this issue. He said, I ask all the great pharmaceutical laboratories to release the patents, make a gesture of humanity, and allow every country, every people, every human being to have access to the vaccines. There are countries where only 3 or 4% of the inhabitants have been vaccinated. In the name of God, I ask financial groups and international credit institutions to allow poor countries to assure the basic needs of their people and to cancel those debts that so often are contracted against the interests of these same peoples. That's a wink and a nod to student loan debt elimination, for example, in the United States. In the name of God, I ask the great extractive industries, mining, oil, forestry, real estate, agribusiness, to stop destroying forests, wetlands, and mountains, to stop polluting rivers and seas, to stop poisoning food and people. In the name of God, I ask the great food corporations to stop imposing monopolistic systems of production and distribution that inflate prices and end up withholding bread from the hungry. 
in the name of God. I asked arms manufacturers and dealers to completely stop their activity uh, because it foments violence and war. It contributes to those awful geopolitical games which cost millions of lives displaced and millions dead. The Pope said all this stuff. In the name of God, I asked the technology giants to stop exploiting human weakness, people's vulnerability for the sake of profits, without caring about the spread of hate speech, grooming, fake news, conspiracy theories, and political manipulation. In the name of God, I asked the telecommunications giants to ease access to educational material and connectivity for teachers via the Internet so that poor children can be educated even under quarantine. In the name of God, I asked the media to stop the logic of post-truth, disinformation, defamation, slander, and the unhealthy attraction to dirt and scandal and contribute to human fraternity and empathy with those who are most deeply damaged. In the name of God, I call on powerful countries to stop aggression, blockades, unilateral sanctions against any country anywhere on earth. No to neo-colonialism. Conflicts must be resolved in multilateral fora such as the United Nations. We have already seen how unilateral interventions, invasions, and occupations end up, even if they are justified by noble motives and fine words. This system, with its relentless logic of profit, is escaping all human control. It's time to slow the locomotive down, an out-of-control locomotive hurling towards the abyss. There's still time. God damn, son. God damn. Pope went full Bernie Sanders there. Listen, he's right. And again, the reason why an out-of-touch dude in a robe and a funky hat is right is because he at least isn't bought by industry, so we can see things plainly for what they are. That's not to say he's so wonderful. It's to say the system is so grotesque and the people are so corrupt within it. And to not lift the patent protections on the vaccine is literally genocidal. It is literally genocidal. And he knows that. He knows that. So you want to protect the profits for Pfizer and Moderna? Okay, then don't lift the patent protections. But we all see the game that's going on. We all know this is for greed and for the bottom line. If we have what is effectively a cure to this thing, and we can get past COVID if we hit herd immunity and we get enough people vaccinated, don't tell me we, we shouldn't do this. Protect the bottom line for a tiny number of people. It's nonsense. Just like with the polio vaccine, Jonas Salk famously said, would you patent the sun? So in other words, of course I'm not going to patent this. It's crazy. Make money off this when I could cure this illness? Are you crazy? That's how we need to look at this too. But big pharma has such a stranglehold on our politics, not just in the U.S., but the world over, that we can't lift the patent protections. I think that uh, every laboratory that can should make the vaccines, and then there should be a... There will be a case over it, and there could be a massive showing of support for the people who wanted to eradicate this illness. Because the way the system works is so grotesque and so disgusting that people who are keeping it in place have to get their comeuppance eventually, and they will. I think they will. It's genocidal to not lift the patent protections. It really is. And the Pope knows that. This is one of the biggest issues facing the world right now. It's an acute crisis, and we basically have the solution and we're not implementing it. Biden says he's in favor of lifting the patent protections, but then Merkel came out and said, I'm not, and apparently you need all the G7 or whatever to support it. I don't know why. Millions of people will die if we don't lift it. Millions of people have already died since we haven't lifted it yet. It's got to stop. All right, final story of the day. Actually, you know what? I don't have time. I'm running out of time. We'll save this for the next show. All right. Love you guys. Everybody have a great rest of your day. I'll talk to you soon. Peace.